You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's story. One that I have wanted to tell for quite some time uh, about the platoon in Afghanistan that has been somewhat mislabeled the cursed platoon for things that have happened to them after a very notable incident. We'll get to that coming up here in just a moment. But just a few reminders before we get started. As always, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Subscribe to Killcliff's YouTube channel. If you're watching this podcast, you can get it either at Hazard Ground's YouTube YouTube channel or Kill Cliffs as well on our website, hazardground.com. You can view all of our podcasts as well. Speaking of hazardground.com, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Go to the homepage and click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the sponsors tab. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. Same thing on your smartphone. It'll redirect you directly to the app and all your information is saved, credit card and everything. So it's really easy and user friendly, but you do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. And then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities that you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. One final reminder, continue the Apple Podcast reviews coming, trying to still crack the top 100 podcasts. Uh, We need to get to at least 1,000 reviews on Apple Podcasts. We're over halfway there, so keep them coming. Again, it doesn't have to be a long review. It doesn't have to be a lengthy review. Just click five stars, give us a review, tell us what you love about the show, and we will uh, continue uh, to work our way up the top of the Apple Podcasts. Let's get to this week's guest. Uh, He is a former U.S. Army Staff Sergeant who spent 16 years in the military, 12 of that in the 82nd Airborne, where he was part of the platoon where he was led into Afghanistan in 2012 by First Lieutenant Clint Lawrence, who was eventually sentenced and imprisoned at Fort Leavenworth for military crimes and then pardoned by Donald Trump. And this is his story and the fallout of the members of himself and the platoon afterwards. He is Michael McGinnis joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Michael, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Well, I appreciate the invite. Uh, it's, it's, I think this is an important thing to uh, uh, talk about, um, especially when we're talking in the scope of, you know, uh, you know, I hate, I, I, I don't want to come off wrong, but American, you know, interventionalism, uh, you know, in, interventionist policy uh, in these other countries where, you know, we have leadership that doesn't exactly understand, you know, what's going on. And uh, we have instances like Clint and, uh you know, old Eddie Gallagher and, yeah. and uh, you know, some of the other dudes that were given the, the pass. And, and I mean, look, this is a story that I first read the Washington Post column. Um, it was about a year and a half ago by Greg Jaff, or is it Jaffe or Jaff, one way or another. Uh, it was a phenomenal, lengthy, lengthy column that uh, detailed everything that you and your fellow platoon mates went through from that fateful day in Afghanistan and everything that has happened afterwards. And, I think this story is so important to tell for the sake of those guys who uh, are still with you, but those who have lost their lives after the the combat in Afghanistan, because I think that really speaks more to um, what those events led to than necessarily the events themselves. There could be a spirited debate, Mike, I'm sure, about uh, what constitutes a war crime, what is exactly a uh, what deserves to be in prison, what doesn't, what's right, what's wrong in the context of combat. But that's not really what this story is about. This story is about you and your fellow platoon mates and 
what you guys have gone through in those days since 2012 in Afghanistan and and what is left of you guys and how you're still putting the pieces back together. And that's really kind of where I want to put our focus for this for this episode. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the kicker of all this. Like the military prepares you for, you know, physically, you know, arduous, uh, you know, training, you know, it prepares you to go over and fight. It prepares you to, to fire a weapon proficiently. It prepares you for all these things. Uh, but what it doesn't prepare you for uh, is moral injury and grief. Uh, those are the two things the military just, for whatever reason, uh, they kind of pay lip service to, but they, we never actually touch on it. Right. Like yeah. we don't, we, we don't, we haven't figured that out for whatever reason. And that's the, the big Royal. We, you know, whether it's a veterans group or the active duty military, they, they just fail miserably at this part of addressing moral injury and grief. Um, you know, I had a buddy just this past week that, that died. Uh, and I've been out for, you know, since 2015, uh, and it doesn't get easier. Um, you know, it, it seems, honestly, it, it seems to get worse because like I turned 40 this year. Uh, and since 2012, I typically go to two funerals every summer. Um, you know, and this is something that should be happening. And like when we're 70 or 80, you know, at the tail end of our lives, you right. know, but instead we get another 20, 30, 40 years of this prior to getting to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's the biggest kicker in all this is like when you don't have the tools to adequately, uh, deal with one, uh, you know, especially for me, you know, like you said, we, we, there is a spirit of debate. How I feel about it is, is Clint Lawrence is a war criminal. Um, and I feel that, uh, you know, the, we were kind of thrown under the bus by our, by our squadron and brigade command. Uh, because they just wanted this to go away. You got to think this, this incident happened on the heels of uh, Robert Bales, just, you know, 20 K West of where he was. So, Hey, you know, we make it quick, we make it quiet and we, and we just prosecute. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, we multiple, uh, you know, NCOs and soldiers both tried to stop him, uh, you know, from issuing the order and he blew us off. Right. Um, you know, and, and that's the frustrating part is we could have been saved this headache if he would have just taken a quick time out uh, and, and listened, you know, especially to the people that had been there for four months at that point already. Right. Well, again, uh, it's funny because the Army gives you a manual for everything, right? They give you a manual how to do everything, even how to write memos. They give you a manual, yet no one sat down to write down the manual for and there is no manual for. Uh, combat and how to deal with everything that comes with it, but we'll we'll get more into that. And the the deployment you were referring to is one of three for you in Afghanistan, the final one that you had. But we always like to start back at the beginning, Mike, and how and why you got in the army. Well, I needed a job. You know, I, I graduated <laughs> high we school all? <laughs> early. Um, you know, and I, I lived in a steel town where the mill closed, so it was like my last year of high school. I just fucked. The, you know, I went to Kent State University, and all I did was fuck around, and you know didn't really apply myself in school. So like my grades were okay. You know, I was at Kent state, but like I was a 17 year old kid, like screwing around on a college campus. Like, come on, was I really doing anything? No, absolutely not. Um, so, I mean, I made the decision to enlist. Um, you know, I, I, it, it got me, you know, it made me grow up when, you know, especially when you're joining the military at 17 years old. Um, I mean, one, I don't, I don't think that should be allowed. Uh, I think we should have to wait a little bit to like our brains are formed uh, rather than sending a 17 year old kid, uh, <laughs> you know, away from home uh, to go screw around with his buddies all day and, uh, you know, fire rifles for a living. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting because 
I did the same thing, except I went the officer route. Like, you know, the, one of the main reasons in the pre-9-11 world I did ROTC was to pay for college. You know, it was a means yeah. to an end. Uh, lo and behold, 9-11, you know, made all of us look at the world a little bit differently. Um, but you got into this whole thing uh, sort of not really knowing what you were getting into. Did you did, did you do any reading ahead of time? Did you study up on what it was going to be like or you just threw caution to the wind? No, I was like, the hell with it. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, my whole family did the Air Force. Uh, you know, my dad's side of the family and uh, they were crushed when I decided to go into the army. They're like, what? You don't want to, you know, like my aunt's a disaster relief specialist. I had another aunt who was um, uh, like Intel, you know, and they're like, you could do these. You're smart. And I'm like, no, man, I'm 17 years old. And if I'm putting a uniform on, I'm going to go, you know, fuck around overseas and kill bad guys. Like, you know, that typical 17 year old stuff, um, you know, and as I got older, it got less about that and more about like, I have these young kids that, and I shouldn't call them kids, but you know, they were my kids at the time, you know? Uh, but these were, these were my guys and I have to make sure they're trained up because you know how it went, the Optap bill just picked up and it kept getting faster and faster and faster. And you had less and less time to train. Uh, so that was, that was how I kind of shifted my focus was like, I'm not this piss and vinegar, you know, full of piss and vinegar kid anymore. I'm this kind of seasoned dude, even though I was still only like 21, 22 years old, you know, and it's, it's my job to help, train you know younger soldiers and then especially once i made a sergeant after my first deployment you know i really took that seriously and it i probably stressed out a little bit more about it than i should have um you know how that goes man you you think about too hard on something it just kind of weighs on you but um but yeah man i mean it was i I did absolutely zero research you know I've, i've always been into history um you know and i was like wow man these guys were fighting wars and you know defending freedom and all that you know the 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 main chords that you strike when you initially talk to a recruiter but i mean i just went so you just jump into this thing in the deep end what was your basic training experience like was it uh was it shock and awe for you <laughs> uh yeah because i had never fired a rifle um that was a that was an adjustment um and honestly, I was the dude that always, like, when I was in high school, I always took, like, the easy way out. So I was, like, the dude in basic training that would, like, make my rack and tighten it down and just sleep on the floor underneath it, you know. Um, that way I didn't have to remake it in the morning, you know. But, I mean, it was it was a, a great learning experience. Um, one of my drill sergeants would end up being my first sergeant on my first deployment. Oh, wow. Which was, which was kind of a, a mind fuck because, like, you know, when you're walking into a battalion building to go sign in when you first get there, right? the last thing you want to hear is your drill sergeant's voice coming from the second floor. Um, and uh, I literally walked back to my company. I was like, I'm not signing in here. Can I go somewhere else? And they were like, no, dude, you gotta like, there you go. You know? <laughs> That's kind of awesome. Um, so how quickly after basic training do you get to your unit and then to your first deployment? Well, I mean, I, I didn't deploy initially until uh, 2008. So I had oh, a lot really? of time. Yeah. Um, how, did, how, how did that happen? Well, I was in a mechanized unit for a little bit, and then I gave the Q course a shot, um, which I didn't make it. Um, and then, you know, you know, with uh, being a holdover, um, I'm not going to lie. I was like, I'm not going back to a mech unit. I, I just don't want to. And I initially had orders to Korea, and I literally told one of the SWIT cadre, I'm not going to report. Um, and they were like, you know what, fuck it. We'll just send you to the 82nd. So when I got to the 82nd, they were in the middle of ITC. Uh, they were prepping to go. Um, and then next thing you know, uh, you know, 2008, we went, 
yeah, it was 2007 and 2008. That was the 15 month. Uh, so 07 was the first, the first time I deployed. So I, I mean, I had, I had a, a way too long, you know, uh, uh, window where I didn't deploy and I really wanted to, but I also was figuring, Hey man, you know, I did, you know, three and a half years in a mech unit. I know what I'm doing. I'm a corporal, you know, I'd be a great green beret. And, uh, you know, I made it, I made it to, uh, you know, later in the course and one, I wasn't academically really that great. I got hurt. Um, and then it was like, you know what, maybe this isn't for me, you know, like I'm just not cut out for it. I gave it a shot, you know, I found out the hard way and, you know, that was all right, you know, and I could still hold my head up knowing that, 70% of those guys still fail, you know? <laughs> You're with the majority, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So when you get to this first deployment in Afghanistan, what are you told? What's your mission? Uh, and sort of what are your expectations heading into it? Well, we went to RC East. Um, and I'll tell you right now, that was miserable because like just walking off the plane, you know, you land in Bagram and the air is already so thin. I'm like, are you kidding? This is going to suck, right? Um and we're sharing battle space with what we thought were four brigades, right? Um, and but by the end of that 15 months, you know, which we only thought was going to be 12, it was just us in the 173rd, like in that holding down that entire area. Um, so like we got thin on the ground. Um, I'm not gonna sit here and say we had the anywhere near the experience uh, you know, the 173rd guys had. I think it's been pretty documented how rough they're. 2007 2008 deployment was um but you know we were told that we were there to essentially initially we worked out of gosney we guarded the ring route you know that freshly paved road that goes around the entire country um did a lot of mounted operations um and then we started splitting up you know our company split up we had our main kind of hub at four corners which was an old kind of like russian compound uh that of course you know we threw the hescos up we you know, made an LZ, we covered in gravel naturally, um, and then, you know, built a gigantic burn pit. And eventually we, you know, we got bee huts and all that other stuff, but, you know, that was a process, but like, you know, we weren't expecting the, the winners we got in RC East. Um, you know, we were, we thought we were going into this really, you know, damning and hospitable hot area. Uh, and not to say it wasn't, um, but we were not prepped for like, oh, it's cloudy out. And then two hours later, oh, now we're knee deep in snow. Um, you know, so that that was kind of a, a mind-blowing experience. But like on that first deployment, you know, we maybe, maybe in 15 months got into 20, 25 ticks, you know, my platoon. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, our, our sister platoons had a couple of combat losses. Um, you know, our, our uh, company Mortars NCO, he uh, was killed. You know, so like that was that was an interesting uh, first deployment because like it's it's what we always talk about deployments, right? It's a lot of waiting around for just a few minutes of action, right? And that was the entire 15 month deployment. Uh, and, and the thing is, is like going into it, we didn't know it was going to be 15 months. We, we literally found out from like a spouse sending a message saying, yeah, we saw a good morning America that you guys are getting extended. And we were like, well, we haven't heard anything. And then three weeks later, Brigade sends a memo down like, yeah, we're getting extended to 15 months rather than 12. Damn you pesky media folks for uh, be yeah. beating our command to the punch. Um, yeah, geez, always the last to know, right? Um, but you talked about some of the casualties you guys you sustained. Um, I know it wasn't anybody directly in your platoon or somebody that you may have known directly, but 
Did any of that start to, you know, resonate with you or jar you a little bit in your head about how difficult combat could be emotionally and, and the stressors that are involved in it? Well, I mean, you, the, the kicker is, is like, I knew Casey, uh, Sergeant Combs. Uh, he was a really good dude. Um, but it, it kind of, when, when you have your first combat loss, and like you said, maybe it wasn't in your platoon or your squad, but within your company, like it really shatters that idea that it's not going to be me, right? Like I can't get hurt. Um, and, and that's, I think, I don't want to say I didn't take all these things seriously going into it, but it kind of put them more into focus, you know, like uh, paying attention to ground signs for IEDs, um, you know, making sure my rifle was zeroed at all times, you know, making sure that, you know, after we got back off of mounted missions, I cleaned that thing to hell and God to make sure it was able to function, you know, in the next, in the next uh, firefight, you know, um, you know, it, it made me focus more on those things and kind of get that idea that it can't be me out of my head because at that point, you know, it could be you, yeah. right? Like our battalion S3 was killed on that deployment, right? Like when does a major get shot? You know, like that's, <laughs> that's how a lot of us looked at it. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I think that was, that's an important lesson to learn that it could always be you. Um, but it's, it's kind of dealing with that, with that ideation, like, Yes, there is a possibility I could be wounded or killed, but I still have a job to do. I still have duties and responsibilities. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's an important lesson to learn. You can't, like, I, I have younger soldiers, like, much later on that were like, you know, we're going to be so trained up, it's going to be less likely. I'm like, less likely doesn't mean not going to happen. So, you know, make sure you're really paying attention to those things that we're supposed to be doing while out on patrol. I tell you, you know, for me, it really hit me. Um, it wasn't even the, you know, idea that it was somebody that I didn't have a close relationship with, but the first casualty loss we sustained, it was the memorial service. When you see the boots, the M16, the dog tags, the Kevlar, you know, you see, you saw pictures of that stuff before, um, and you always knew what it represented and what it meant. Um, but until you go to one of those things and you stand in front of there and you salute, and then you, and what's even more jarring is to see, uh, you know, grown adults, men and women. Uh, bawling their eyes out and, and being brought to tears at the loss. And that's when the kind of devastation of the whole thing, at least for me personally, really kind of got me and really made me understand the magnitude of, of loss in combat and, and how hard it can be. Um, and then how quickly you sort of have to, to scan and discard all those emotions immediately um, and, and figure out where to store them uh, in time to get back out there for your next mission. Um, and that, you know, that sort of behavior which is a expectation, albeit more often than not an unrealistic one uh, for any human in any circumstance. Um, but we are, we are forced very quickly to take those emotions, put them away and go right back to work. Um, because that's what the mission requires, right? Like there's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I mean, we could sit here and try to figure out a way to, to give soldiers a way to, hey, just, you know, take a couple of days off or, you know, take a knee on this one. But none of us ever are conditioned to do that because that's not how we're trained. Yeah. You know, we're, we're trained to get back in the, most of us are trained to get back in the fight because that's what we know. And so, um, and, and where I was going with all this, Mike, you know, just to, I'm, I'm trying to just, for lack of a better way to phrase it, you know, build a, some, some background about what you were walking into and, and what the aftermath of 2012 was for you guys, because I'm not sure if there was anything that might've happened prior to it that could have prepared you for it all, but I'm just kind of curious how much, 
uh, of the trauma was sort of compound, compounded by previous trauma, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I would honestly say my second deployment is where like my struggles to deal with it really started because in the Argandab, that place doesn't give a damn, right? Like uh, by the end of that deployment in 2009, 2010, our Charlie company was essentially combat ineffective, um, you know, and we were, you know, we, this is a thing, like, it seems like the, the units I was in, in the 82nd, uh, kind of got the short end of the stick because in 2009, 2010, we moved from working out of Kalat and then moved down into the Argandab after Morlock and his people in 2ID decided that they were just going to go around rampaging in the villages along the river, right? And so they pushed 2ID out. We moved in behind them, and we were not uh, expecting the kind of fight we got. And it was it was hard fighting. Um, this was our our first real kind of introduction to IEDs being used you know, used against dismounted personnel. Like we saw it a lot on the 15 month deployment against our vehicles and during mounted missions, but we didn't see them used a lot against, you know, us on the ground. Um, you know, and, and we had, a, that was, that was an awful deployment. Um, you know, I lost quite a few buddies on that one and, you know, it kind of, uh, you know, like you said, you, you can't even take the knee, right. Cause at this point you're a staff sergeant, you know, you're, a squad leader, a platoon sergeant, a company commander, a PL, you know, when you're in those positions, you can't even take, you can't even take a timeout for 10 minutes for yourself, uh, let alone, um, you know, do any real kind of, I guess, like kind of uh, self-care, right? Like you, you just don't have the time uh, because you're worried about how the guys are, are dealing with it. You know, um, you know, we had a guy named Nick Stone, literally, you know, just a few feet in front of me, had his leg blown off, um, you know, and, you know, Nick's laying on the ground, turning fire, right? And then he looks off to his right, he, he just sees his foot, like, standing straight up and down, or the lower half of his leg, um, you know, and that kind of, you know, showed me that this, this fight isn't going to get better, no matter what the leadership is telling us, you know, Um this this is going to keep being kind of like a, a very rough fight and a very capable enemy's backyard. You mentioned the leadership. Um, what was your previous leadership like on your first two deployments? I mean, obviously, again, you know, you're at a platoon level, so you're dealing with lieutenants, you know, uh, some more junior than others, um, but some have more experience than others. But what was, in general, your, your company-level leadership like prior to that third deployment? Were they guys you trusted and had faith in? Well, my, my first deployment, I had um, a great command team all the way down for the most part, right? You know, my company commander was all right, but we had a great first sergeant, you know? Um, we had Martin Schweitzer as our brigade commander, uh, and that guy did whatever he could for the boys on the ground. You know, we had a great brigade sergeant major, a command sergeant major, and uh, uh, sergeant major Flowers, who was all of the same mind, right? So... Like, if they could support us, they would. And, and th- those first two deployments, like, especially in the Argandab, where the fighting got very rough, um, and we had some changeover at the top of battalion uh, and, and even our brigade. Like, we had, I don't know if you remember the drink wine incident where his wife was on brag, like, uh, uh, threatening the other wives and, and, like, using her position as the, FR, the brigade FRG leader. Like, it was just a mess, right? 
Um, what kind but, of weight like, does a brigade FRG person have over somebody else? Exactly. I mean, and that's, that's the thing. Like she was like, well, my husband's the brigade commander. So obviously you have to listen to me. And it's like, no, yeah, one, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. They're all civilians. It gives a shit what you have to think, you know? Um, so we had a lot of changeover at the top, but, um, you know, we, we lost my company commander on the second deployment. Uh, we had a pretty good dude come in again. Uh, you know, we had some, I had great leadership at the platoon level for the most part. And when it wasn't good, uh, we had a great support system as squad leaders and team leaders to kind of, okay, we're, you know, these guys, this dude or this person is an idiot, but, you know, we still have to maintain mission. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of it, you know. Uh, so, I mean, it was nice. We had a good support system and I got spoiled. I had great leadership. Um, like what killed me is on my second rotation, um, Steve Kwok ended up being my PL and I remembered him as a staff sergeant, right? Oh, wow. Like, yeah, like, and he was just this amazing, amazing leader. And he and I clicked right off the bat, you know, like it was, it was great. Um, you know, and when he moved out because, you know, in an infantry battalion, it's like, everybody's got to get a CIB. So yeah, Steve, you know, you've done five months here. We got to get a new guy in. Um, we got a brand new, uh, you know, second lieutenant uh, by name of Pete Forche, who was an amazing leader. Absolutely amazing. Uh, he just was very, you know, he was not like your typical infantry PL. He was very reserved, uh, very, very analytical, you know. So like when orders came down, you know, he'd, you'd immediately start to see the gears turn in and, you know, we'd sit down and have a quick powwow. And it's like, all right, man, this is what we got to do. And he was a good planner. Like it was like I got spoiled. Um, with some of my PLs. Uh, and that's what I expected out of my PLs, like to kind of, I need you to plan well, you know, we'll sit down and talk, I will always do what I'm supposed to do. Um, but I like to be allowed to work. I, I think, you know, at this point, in my career, that's what I wanted. Um, and, and for like, I mean, I'm not even kidding, man, probably five years, I had PLs that would let me do that. And it was nice. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, from the officer side, you know, I, I wish there were more uh, of, of leaders who tried as hard as they could to relate to the ground level. Um, and, and look, not that it's an excuse, but as you move up the ranks and you get further away from that, um, your your view changes and your understanding of the battle space changes and uh, what you're in charge of changes. So that affects a lot of your decision making. But, you know, at the platoon level, it, it's it's always been a goal um, of mine to make sure that the people at that level understand the scope of what they have to do and, and what they need to do to be successful. And that's really just work as a, as a complete team. If there is a, a thing to do at that level and trust everybody unequivocally. And the fact that you had good leaders there, uh, I think is important um, because it, it allows you to easily see the contrast. Once you got what you ended up with, with Clint Lawrence, that it was going to be somebody exactly who is the antithesis of that um, and, and automatically it, 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 it just creates a sense of, of, of mistrust, um, that you don't ever really want to be there. Right. I mean, it just, yeah. it creates a certain level of, of, uh, that split second where you have to double think about what they're telling you because you don't trust them. And, and sometimes that can be the difference between life and death or, or good and bad in battle. Right. I mean, it's, a, those are the kind of moments that you don't want to have to deal with when it comes to leadership. Yeah. I mean, it's, that, that's the thing I always told all my, all my, all oh my guys, my squad, like you're going to learn more from bad leadership than you are good leadership. Um, 
and they would just kind of sit there and look at me and I'm like, you'll know a bad leader when you see it. And you know, when you become a leader, you do the exact opposite of what they did. Uh, and you're probably going to come out pretty, you know, looking pretty good. Um, and then you just build on that. And, and so like, I, I mean, when I got to the 82nd, there were a lot of young leaders. So you saw kind of like the hiccups, but I had, like I said, I was spoiled. I had all these combat deployed guys that had shared what they know, you know, what they knew with me. Uh, I had great squad leaders. Uh, and like I said, when I became a leader, I had all these, I had a series of, of outstanding POs um, that, you know, like you said, shared, you know, what we needed to do to um, make mission, but also, and I agreed with this 100%, to let the guys know, listen, we look micro, brigade looks macro. Like, don't, don't try, like for us, we can't win the war by ourselves, but what we can do to to, to at least help out with that is make sure that we're doing what we're supposed to in this particular section of this province. Control your piece of the pie. Yeah. You know, and a lot, you know, you know how it is. And I'm sure you probably ran across them, especially since you were commissioned, you have like younger leaders that are like, well, I mean, I read this book and you're, you know, I did this or I've, I've experienced this and maybe we should try it this way. And it's like, bro, not the time, not the place. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everyone's got a great idea that they got in a book until, uh, you know, as Mike Tyson says, the first bullet flies by your head and then that book doesn't yep. mean a damn thing. Um, yep. You mentioned how taxing your second deployment was from a law standpoint and everything else. And we've also touched on, you know, the idea that you don't get a chance to take a knee. When you get back from that second deployment, is there a sense at all within you that this stuff is compounding and, without really even recognizing it, it, it may start to become more than what you mentally were ready for. I mean, is there a sense that you, you might've dawned on yourself? Maybe I need to take a breath on this one. Looking back on it now, that is exactly what I should have done. Right. right. Like I, I should have asked, you know, like maybe I go work in the schoolhouse, you know, we have an NCO Academy. I was a staff sergeant. All I needed to do was ALC. And I would have been like, check, you are a fully fledged staff sergeant at this point. Um, and, and, you know, I could have pursued that, but I didn't, I was like, you know what, I got to go back. And, you know, I made the, the, the dumb soldier, uh, self-prognosis that, you know, to snap out of this funk, I'm just going to drown myself in alcohol, which was a horrible mistake. Um, you know, I was really, I, I'm not gonna lie, man. I became a pain in the ass for a short period of time. Um, before I, I made the decision to, I wouldn't say I wouldn't talk to somebody like in any real way. Um, but I, you know, went and talked to the chaplain a few times, you know, he, he laid some coping mechanisms down for me. I'm like, okay, I'm fine. I'm cured. There's nothing wrong with me now. Um, <coughs> but you know, like I was still, you know, exhibiting all these, this, neg you know, the negative behaviors, um, you know, with the overconsumption of alcohol with, you know, I was pushing my family away. Um, you know, I was just like, listen, if this is what I'm going to be doing, I need to withdraw more from my family. That way it's less of a sting if something does happen, you know, and uh, I eventually I moved from second bat 508 over to 473, um, where I kind of uh, got my footing again. You know, um, we, Brian Menace got the authorization to set up coin platoons, which is the dumbest name ever, but it's essentially any able-bodied male at the time, uh, that he could get his hands on, we're going to go plus up Rista squad, you know, a, a Rista platoon up to an infantry size platoon. So like, 
one of my 240 gunners was a 13 Bravo. I had a couple 11 Chucks as ammo bearers. Our RTO was an 88 Mike. Um, and then we were a mix, you know, kind of a mixed bag of 19 Deltas and 11 Bs. Um, so like, I was like, okay, well, there's going to have to be a lot of training to be done. Right. Like I, I, I can do this. And it gave me something to fo- kind of focus in on. Right. Uh, um, which I did. Um, and then I'm not going to lie when, you know, they did the newcomers brief, like almost a month and a half after I'd been there. Okay. <laughs> um, the, the squadron sergeant major and the, uh, squadron, uh, commander were like, yeah, we're going into RC South. And when they showed us on the map, I was like, son of a bitch that it was only like 25 K from where we were in the Argonaut. And I, dude, I got up and I walked out the back and just lit up a cigarette. And all the guys that came over from 2508 with me did the same. And Sergeant Major came out and was like, well, why did you guys leave? And we're like, because you're telling all these, all these people that this is going to be this great adventure. We just left there. And that place fucking sucks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like this is not an adventure, Sergeant Major. This is bad, man. This is really, really bad. And he's, you know, you know, he, he just sat there and was like, well, it's something to think about. And I was like, oh, Jesus, this is going to suck dick, you know? <laughs> yeah, something to think about. Yeah, I, I've already thought about it. I've come to the conclusion. This will suck. You don't need to tell me anything more. Yeah. Um, I mean, and the thing is, is like, <laughs> when, I, when I first got to 473, we had this amazing sergeant major. And like I said, he, we didn't have time to do a, new, a newcomer's brief because we were all, we were in the, like ITC. We're trying to figure out how these platoons are going to work. So they just kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And you know how a colonel is. We have new soldiers. We have to do a brief. Okay, dude. Um, you know, and, you know, this particular sergeant major who I'm not very fond of, he talked like this and he would say, hey, man, get on the, t- you know, check these blocks and get on the team. And we're just like, oh, I fucking hate you, dude. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. It's just to, to, side note, total, totally anecdotal. Um you described that guy and I know exactly what you're talking about. And re- immediately in my head, there's like three sergeant majors who I've just picked out throughout my career who do the exact same thing. It's really yeah. funny how we can typecast ranks like that. Uh, and it's always the same ranks. It's either colonels, sergeant majors, or, you know, uh, uh, the, the lowest ones, the privates, the specialists, and the, and the lieutenants. So uh, yep. we're not, just weird. Anyway, so you're heading back there. Um was anything different about your mission heading to RC South than the previous ones? Or was well, it still had, the same? It was this, this whole coin platoon thing, right. right? They were really leaning into counterinsurgency. Right. Um, and I kind of looked at it this way. Like, um, as, as I got a little bit older, like, I, I got focused on, hey, when I retire, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to be a historian. And all I read is history. And, and that's the way it's been for, you know, 20 years now, right? And I'm just sitting there like, coin counterinsurgency is is this nice new shiny thing that david petraeus reached up on a shelf and he pulled it down and he dusted it off and then he rewrote a few things right like honestly it the united states does not do it well historically does not do it well right and the thing is in 2012 2011 2012 if you would have went up to any staff officer or any senior staff nco and asked them what counterinsurgency was. And there were 20 of them. You were getting 20 different answers, <laughs> yes. right? It's just like pacification during Vietnam. Well, what's pacification? Nobody knew. They just knew they had to do it, right? So that's how I looked at it. And I, my first PL on that deployment, Dom, you know, Dominic Latino, um, you know, we were sitting down in the office one day after a jump and he's just like, dude, I don't even know what the hell we're doing. And I, 
I sat down and told him, I'm like, you're not supposed to. That I mean, in counterinsurgency, you, no one knows how to do this. So we're just going to have to figure it out, uh, you know, and make sure that we're not just focusing on like the combat aspect of the mission. We also have to focus on that, that kind of, um, uh, what do you call it? You know, the civilian aspect of the mission as well, right? Mm-hmm. So, you hearts know, Dom was, just, hearts Dom was just, yeah, hearts and minds, right? But Dom was just kind of like, oh man, I don't know. But he, he was knocking that job out of the park before he got wounded uh, on that deployment. But like we, the platoon I went to was, was great. Um, I ran the platoon for about three months. I uh, got them trained up um, and it was just a lot of fun. You had a lot of young soldiers that, you know, and I told them right where we were going and I showed them pictures from my second rotation, you know, and they were like, damn, I was like, yeah, keep that in mind. Not, not the great adventure that Tweedledee and Tweedledum up at squadron are telling us it's going to be, but this is serious work. And the harder we work here, you know, the, the more prepared we are over there, you know, and they did, they, they took to it. Um, when Sergeant Ayers, my platoon Sergeant came in, you know, he was just like, bro, these guys are ready to go. And I was like, I told you, I was like, we've been working really hard. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, we're glad to have you here, man. And I was like, dude, just let me know what you need. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm here. You can, and the thing is we, we came up with the role where he was the nice NCO and I was the dickhead. So whenever he needed yelling to be done, I went out and screamed and yelled, you know, and that way he could be, he could be the, the good cop, you know, like it was, it was just such a great platoon to be in. Um, and we were all incredibly like stupidly close. Um, like I, you know how a platoon is like, you're close. Um, but like, and I was, I had great platoons that I was in before, but this one was just something else, man. It was, we're kind of, like I said, we, we had 11 Bravos and 19 Deltas and 88 Mikes and 11 Charlies and, and, and 13 Bravos, you know, like we, we had all these guys that were just thrown together uh, to do counterinsurgency um, with nobody really knowing how to do that. And we were just like, we'll take it one day at a time when we get there. A couple of things I just wanted to kind of revisit for a moment. You talked about your, your LT who was wounded prior to Lawrence getting there and him having that conversation with you in reference to not knowing what was going on or not knowing what you're doing. Um, are you the type of guy that when you hear that from your leader, you, you sort of take that vulnerability as something good and you can have an open, honest conversation with them or does that sort of scare you a little bit that your your leadership is admitting they basically don't know what's going on and what's next? No, I mean, I thought it was a good thing. I think that's important. Um, I would rather have a guy tell me, hey, I have no clue. And then that way we can sit down, you know, take that kind of tactical pause and draw up a plan to get from point A to point B or whatever, right. you know, whatever the requirement for that day is, right? Um, then somebody who just is like, nope, uh, you know, somebody who doesn't know what's going on, just like hard charging it through like bull in a China shop, you know, as well as I do that rarely, if ever ends well, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I appreciated that. And, and like I said, Dom was a phenomenal planner as well. Uh, like I said, I, I stress that to my lieutenants, like, and that's what I looked for. I didn't want a lieutenant to know everything. I didn't want a lieutenant to be like the most proficient person because that comes with doing the job more and longer. Right. But if you're a good planner, that is a nice base that we can build on and move forward with. Uh, and he was, uh, I mean, I think I'm pretty sure his knuckles dragged the ground, but he was a phenomenal planner. Yeah. Uh, were you surprised at how well this, this unit of sort of misfits, if you will, gelled together? Oh, I was shocked. I, I, I was absolutely shocked. Um, I mean, Brett Frace, uh, who's still in the military, he's a sergeant first class now. Uh, you know, he's a truck driver by trade, 
and he's like, well, now I'm in a combat unit as, as the RTO. Um, and he didn't piss moan or complain about it. You know, he was just like, I'm here. Um, you know, I had a, a, one of my great friends who's a first sergeant now in the 82nd, um, Joe Morrissey, you know, he was a reclass from like a mechanic to a 19 Delta. Uh, and he was the first day I met him, he had like his sleeves cuffed inside, which I have no issues with, but he had a live strong bracelet on and he's inside the office with, uh, one of our branch detail PLs that was there before uh, Latino got there. And he's just sitting there having a conversation with them. And I'm like, why are you in the office? You're a specialist. Uh, and he's like, well, listen, man, like I'm one of the only leaders here. And I'm like, all right, cool. But you're not a sergeant. I was like, get the fuck out. Right. Um, and I looked at Lieutenant Maluro and I'm like, sir, what's going on? Like, why are you letting him in here? He's like, well, you know, Sergeant, we don't have any other NCOs here because for whatever reason, squadron sent literally almost every NCO to NCOES at the same time when we're like trying to prep to go into the field in the following week or two. And I'm just like, you know, it's letting, it's letting the the chickens run around, you know, right. with, with no supervision. So like I go into the cage room and I just hear Morrissey, Oh, this, this fucking stocky motherfucker, uh, you know, thinks he can just come in here and tell me what to do. Like, I can't believe this. Da, 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 da. And there was a specialist. I'm not even kidding. His name was Marshall Rambo. He was like six, four, like blonde hair, blue eyes and just, stood over everybody. He's like, you mean that dude? And Morrissey turns around. I was just like, Oh damn it. And I just walked up to him and I cut the, I cut the Livestrong bracelet off his wrist. And I was like, you know, damn well, you can't wear this in uniform. Um, you know, and he was just like, Oh, and sit after that, we like, we've been great friends since, you know, That's crazy. <laughs> you know, I mean, but it was, it was such a weird, just little group and we knew it. And we were just like, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to throw in together because that's the best way for us to move forward. Yeah, I mean, I uh, coincidentally, I had sort of the same thing thrown together uh, on my first deployment. There were three different platoons that were, were sort of mishmashed together for me to command. And um, when I tell you I've never seen the amount of infighting, um, that y- you couldn't even make it up. You know, E7s from different platoons fighting with each other, who wanted to play acting first sergeant, who didn't. I mean, it was, it was garbage. It was awful. Um, and, and you get a lot of headstrong people together and it could, it could be a bad recipe on the flip side, you know, you get the right people together. I don't think the rank matters. I don't think the positions matter. I think everybody sort of works towards the same goal. Um, and it took a long time. Uh, you probably, you know, almost three quarters of the deployment to get everybody to a place where, um, they, they could coexist, you know, thankfully I was able to kind of farm some people out to different locations where they didn't have to cross paths with each other every day, but um, it was, uh, it, it can go horribly wrong when they do that. It, it's definitely a roll of the dice by putting people together from different units. I mean, anybody knows that too. And, uh, we've had guys on the podcast tell the story. I just entered into a new unit and they had been training up for months to go to deployment. I get there and a week later we leave and, you know, I'm the FNG sort of, and he's the outcast, uh, walking into this, this band of brothers, if you will, to, to overuse a phrase, but you get the point sort of, uh, so yep. you can see how that whole, uh, sort of you know relationship and conglomeration of things can can be good or bad yeah i mean but like i said we lucked out like we were just like you know it seems like our squadron doesn't know really what colonel menace the brigade commander wanted right again it's counterinsurgency nobody knows what they're doing nobody um you know i'm sorry not even petraeus knew what the fuck he was doing (laughs) like and i will i will swear up and down (laughs) to my dying day that that man like he rode that to the top and then, you know, what happened is what happened. But, you know, just him 
putting his name on that manual, like when that was like the hot word everywhere was how you fight counterinsurgency. Well, dude, again, none of us know how to do it. You know, none of us know how to do it. It's, it's something we figure out when we get there, you know, but like trying to set up, you know, this is how we do coin prior to, because what works in one province isn't going to work in another. You have to be, you know, Semper Gumby, always flexible, right? Like, um, and you know, damn well, there's a lot of commands that aren't, uh, and in fourth brigade, um, you know, the higher ups after, after uncle Marty left, the higher ups were not the flexible type, you know, right. it was like, do it my way. And then once it trickled down to us, we're like, no, we'll meet the intent, but we're going to do it our way, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. So, uh, when do you get there in 2012? We got there in February. Okay. Um, and within the, fr- like the second day we were at Manus, um, I found out my grandfather had passed. And then my buddy from 2508 was killed in a blue on green, which sucked. Like, that's not how I really wanted to to start the deployment. Did you get the details of the blue on green incident? Yeah. Yeah. It was um, uh, my buddy, uh, you know, Jordan Bear. Uh, he was a staff sergeant. Or he might have been. Yeah, I think he was a staff sergeant. Um, but he uh, was just doing a tower check. And him and another young soldier were in the tower. And uh, the Afghan, they were the Afghan uh, army uh, person that was buddied up with them, turned his weapon on him, uh, on them both um, before being killed himself. So, like, I had never dealt with that, right? Like, I've never had to deal with with the, the kind of the, the presence of, you know, hey, you're buddied up with, with these Afghans. You know, you're going to have to keep an eye on them as well. You know, because like our the partner units that I had in Afghanistan for the most part were pretty good. You know, like they fought their asses off, especially when we're in the Argandab, you know, and I was just now it's just like, geez, man, you know, like you gotta be kidding me. You know, this is not what we need right now. Right. Um and then we went into uh a place, uh, give me a second, man. Uh I'm trying to remember the name. Uh it was outside of Sarkari Karez. Um, and, uh, you know, it was hot. We did a lot of mounted stuff, a lot of dismounted stuff. Um, you know, there was a village that we were trying to conduct coin operations in. Uh, and like our first day on the ground, we got into like this nine hour firefight. It was gnarly as hell. Wow. Um, and, you know, both platoons, you know, in a wrist platoon or troop, you only have two platoons, you don't have three. You know, so like we're, if one platoon's out, we're like on guard, we got like a QRF fired up, you know, like it was just, it was really hectic. And I wasn't used to running that short because I'm used to there being three platoons, Mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, it was, it was go, you know, from day one. Um, And the guys, you know, they, they realized, you know, Hey, um, this is going to be rough, you know? And then, you know, we're getting word that the IED threat for dismounts is much higher than it is. Uh, than vehicles because they know they can do more damage that way well you know we have these mine hounds that overheat within 20 or 30 minutes uh you know and then we had this old crusty eod guy total total boss uh man by the name of israel nuanis um who was you know was sitting down and teaching young soldiers how to how to spot you know wires and and you know uh munitions that had been like dug in and, and, and buried. Like he was just such a, he was so awesome, man. Um, and, uh, you know, so we started getting, you know, 
kind of getting weird with with how we would mark the trails we walked right we used baby powder dirt or talcum powder during the day and we would crack chem lights ir chem lights at night and just dump them out as we walked uh you know that way people could see like this path is cleared this is good to go you know like um when we started running out of stuff like that we would drop poker chips because everybody wanted to send us poker sets you know um so we would throw poker chips down like hey just follow the chips you know um, so we, we got really uh, crafty with how we would with how we were doing things. And I, I think we were doing a really good job there. But then we got pushed out by 2ID uh, because like the, a lot of the the operations dealt with monitoring movement on on improved roads. You know, we have Matt V's and things like that, but, you know, they have strikers, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're they're a little more built to that. So we swapped out and moved a little further south into um, Garaban, uh, you know, that area. Um, and that's where our brigade HQ was. And then we were kind of dispersed throughout. Uh, and that's when we got into uh, Panzai and, um, you know, the, the I guess the deployment kind of got very different. Like we were used to being on the ground, but where we were at before, it was very wide open for the most part. Here, very condensed, uh, you know, great bros, a um, lot of uh, irrigation ditches, um, you know, and these weren't like small great bros. Like these were like almost eight, nine feet tall. So like you're going up and over each and every one because you can't walk on the roads, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or any of the paths. So like this was, this was rough going. Um, and when we got to Garaban, you know, we're, we're, we're doing, you know, Captain Swanson, who was an amazing troop commander, um, was like, all right, well, first you're going to move out and you're going to go into PK um, or Panzai, you know, head out there. 2ID has like a, a small cop and you're going to go occupy it, right? Well, when we got to Garaban, there's like, <laughs> there's like a mess tent, you know, there's Alaska tents with AC. We're just kind of like, oh man. Um, but we're like, hey, it's a cop. So there's going to be something there, right? No. Um, it took us, it took us nine and a half hours to move three K. Um, and we got hit right before, right before we got to the gate. Right. Um, I was the weapon squad leader at this point. And before we pushed off, I'm like, all right, guys, this is going to suck. Um, but we're taking every linked seven, six, two round. We can get our hands on. Uh, we had the Gustav which was a big time game changer. We're going to bring every goose round we can get our hands on, uh, bring extra socks, bring extra t-shirts um, and, and uh, an extra pair of pants. They're like, but everybody else is just carrying a salt pack. I'm like, dude, we don't know if we're coming back to Garaban. Like we had a tent we were allowed to stow shit in, but like, we don't know what, when we're going back. Right. Uh, and I was the smart one because we didn't go back there for six weeks. So I oh, felt wow. justified um, in, in loading everybody including myself down okay so um but like i we we get hit like i passed off a a round bag you know uh these guys kind of um you know the egress and i just grabbed my round bag and like i my crotch is busted you know in my pants because frack use are awful you know i'm just dragging this empty round bag in and i'm expecting to see tents and everything there is nothing inside this this cop it's literally three strikers strong pointed at the corners it has a gate uh, with, with way more sea uh, wire than they needed. There was a freezer unit there that wasn't hooked up to a generator. There was like a 12 by six foot, 
like slat with a camo net over top and then a road grader. That was it. And as soon as we got there, those guys loaded up the strikers and got the fuck out. <laughs> really? Yes. And I'm just sitting there like, oh, man, this is going to be so bad. Um, and then what really pissed me off is the squadron commander and the squadron sergeant major show up in an aircraft and land inside. Um, I took every cigarette I had with me and the squadron commander comes up and starts bumming smokes from me as he's standing there for like two hours. And I'm just like, this is all I have, man. This is all I have. Why are you taking from me? <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, did you ask him like WTF? What are we doing here? Was there any, oh, any of those conversations? Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, a Lieutenant Latino is not what you would call um, smooth with his words. <laughs> uh, he, he's very blunt, uh-huh. uh, e- even to this day. And uh, Dom was trying to be maintain military bearing, you know, and be respectful and be the good leader that he is. Um, but he just looks at him and goes, sir, what the fuck? Yeah, that, you know, that's, that's, that's what I would have been like. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> that's all he said. And Colonel Howard's like, listen, we're going to get tense here. We're going to do all this. We're going to do all that. Um, and the tents eventually got there like a week before Lawrence did. So like, so we had two and a half months of literally just sleeping in the dirt um, with no way to like really cool off or sustain ourselves until someone, I don't know what happened. Like we did a watery supply and our distro came out and just dumps a, uh, a uh, generator that I don't know how we got hooked up to the freezer, but we got it running. And so we just stuffed it full of water, uh, the little chow we had. Um, and then what we started doing is if you weren't on guard or on SOG, um, you would go stand in the freezer or you would go to that road grader and just sit in the cab with the AC on to try and cool off. Yeah, you know? <laughs> sounds about right. Uh, make do with what you got. Uh, yeah. You guys had sustained some some casualties up to uh, the events of July second. Um, was there a sense for you that like uh, between after what happened on the first deployment and you get more stuff on the second deployment, and now you're here, you're out in the middle of nowhere, you have these extreme austere conditions, and and your guys are already getting wounded. Did you think that you know, hey, I'm not going to make it out of here alive? I mean, I. I had thoughts that this was going to be the one that got me because like IEDs, like I small arms fire. Um, I, I'm okay with that all day of the week. I, I like my chances, um, especially running the weapon squad. Like I, I felt I've got the firepower here between, you know, the 240, the goose. Um, and uh, I managed to finagle a 320. So I was like, I, I've got my bases covered here. Right. But then IEDs though, you can't, you can't beat those things. Yeah. Right. And the mine hounds they give you, like I said, they're overheating after 30, 30 to 50 minutes. So then they're just no good. They're, but you, the thing is, is you had brigade running like uh, the balloons up and using uh, uh, observation drones to watch us. So we couldn't just fold the thing up and throw it in our bag. We had to have a person out front waving that damn thing, uh, even when it stopped working. You know, like it was the dumbest shit ever. Um you know, and it was very frustrating because, like, we had those Garmin Ford trucks, and after every uh, mission, you know, we had to send the walk data, as it became known, into Brigade. So Brigade could ensure we were actively walking for eight hours every patrol. It was the most ridiculous thing that is I've nuts. ever dealt with. 
So you had to walk for a certain amount of time as opposed to a distance or to a destination? Yes. Yeah. What and they, the, the, the <laughs> Captain Swanson, like I said, one of the best leaders I've ever had, he would say, okay, if we're going to be out this long, let's, uh, you know, aim small, miss small. Let's go into this village. Let's talk to the people. Let's just keep going there. What's the worst that happens, right? Like they find, they see us, they're like, okay, these guys are legit, you know, um, let, let's see if we can like build a well or work another project into the conversation, see what happens, right? But dude, there were times where, and you got to understand around Panzai, there were other smaller villages around that just looked bombed out and abandoned. That mm-hmm. those would be something that came down from brigade, like you have to go in there. And it's like, but the intel we received is like literally those places are laced with IEDs because they put all the shit in the dead center of them. And only like the, the insurgents know how to, you know, kind of get in. Right. They're funneling you into, into sort of a kill zone. Yeah. Right. And we're like, that makes no sense, especially if you're not going to give us eyes on it for like a day or two and then uh, give us the assets to kind of defeat the IED threat, you know, but he'd be like, no, I mean, this would be coming down all the way from the top, you know, from, from brigade down, like, no, you have to go walk in these villages. And we're like, God damn it. You know, (laughs) just, it was, it was, it was literally working to time, not standard, you know, the exact opposite. The exact opposite of what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Wow. Uh, So when uh, Dominic Latino, your, your PL and everybody get wounded, um, was there a sense that what could come next was going to be bad because you didn't know who you were getting or, or were you kind of the mindset that you'd replaced other guys before you know, you had a good idea of the battle rhythm and things of that nature. Like, what was the feeling after uh, th- that PL was, was sort of taken out of the equation? So I got pulled. For whatever reason, they pulled a staff sergeant from each platoon and sent us back to um, uh, the Big Fob Brigade. Bagram. Um, yeah. No, okay. not, not Bagram. It was it was down. Give me a second. It'll, it'll come to me. It was um, – oh, Jesus. I can't believe I'm uh, forgetting this. It'll come to me, um, but we, we all had to go back and the operations sergeant majors like you all have to be retrained on how to use the mine hounds because our Bravo troop literally had this ridiculous mass cow uh, the week prior, uh, like 10 dudes were hit. They had a couple deaths, you know, like it's just the ID threat was just that prevalent. That's what they that was their primary weapon to get us. Right. And it's like so we, we go into uh Man, that name's gonna it's gonna piss me off but we, we get to the big fob right the i'm big looking for it right now for you <laughs> and um we meet with the civilians that are servicing the mine hounds right mm-hmm. and they're like okay guys we know this is not a good product and we know a lot of you guys only got to, to mess with it you know a few weeks before you left so what are some of the issues and they're writing them down you know, and we were telling them we were dumping water on the T-shirts, putting them in the freezer and then wrapping them around like the, the battery pack just to get an extra 20 or 30 minutes out of it. Right. And he's like, OK, so overheating, you know, the GPR is not fully functioning. OK, got it. You know, like and then you would have thought that with civilian contracted officials and an operations sergeant major that had a fucking Grenada scroll on or excuse me, a Panama scroll on that he would be very well versed in you are not the subject matter expert on this particular item of equipment. Those contractors are, well, this particular Sergeant major didn't feel that way. Uh, and essentially told us we were all fucked up. Um, and that's why people were dying. Right. Which I got a case of the ass. So I, you know, my, my counterpart from second platoon, I went to dinner chow and I saw 
like four vehicles for my platoon. And I'm like, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, well, Dom got hit. So did Kerner. And I was like, holy shit. I was like, are, are we walking wounded? Like, what's the, what's the deal? You know, and Dom got peppered really bad. Uh, they, they packed some um, HME with like shrapnel into a mason jar, essentially. And it just shot straight up. Um, but it caught Kerner in the butt cheek and took out like a fist-sized chunk of his, of his uh, butt cheek. And Dom got peppered from like mid-shin up to his forehead. So he was just like a bloody mess, oh, wow. um, you know, and we're just like, well, fuck. And Keith's there and he's like, Hey man, you know, how long is this class? And I'm like, it doesn't matter. Let's just, let's just leave. You know, like what's, what's the worst that happens. They don't see me, you know, in, in the, the classroom or for retrain, they're just going to bitch. Okay. That's fine. But there's like, my PL just went down. Keith is now the PL and I'm running the platoon as a platoon sergeant. Right. Mm-hmm. So that seemed a little more important than having a man who's probably never handled a mine hound tell us that we didn't know how to use this item of equipment, right? So Keith and I did that for a few weeks, and I think we did pretty well. Um, you know, during that time, Haynes got hit in the neck. Um, but, you know, we were, I mean, we had a squad leader that was a corporal, you know, like. But that was we just out of necessity? Yeah, yeah. Um, we lost two staff sergeants. Uh, one got pulled to squadron to kind of like fill like an LNO NCO job. Uh, and I was like, well, why does that come from us? You know, like this is ridiculous. Um, and I can't remember what happened to the other. Um, but I mean, we were making it work. Uh, like I said, was it hard? Absolutely. It really was. But, you know, everybody was still on the same page. We were all still working collectively together, you know, um, I mean, I lucked out, had great AGs in my gun teams because for three months I did the AM and the PM patrol. Um, you know, one team would go out during the day, one team would go out during the evening, but I went out on both of them. And, you know, my AGs were like, dude, you can't do that anymore. Like you have to be able to sleep, uh, you know? And I'm like, well, fair enough. That's a good point. Uh, so, you know, like if I would do like one patrol a day and then, you know, do cover down on SOG. So one of the line squad leaders can head out with his people. Like that was just stuff we did. Mm -hmm. Like we, it was a mutually supporting kind of like, uh, (laughs) you know, ecosystem there. It was great. Had you heard the name Clint Lawrence prior to knowing he was coming to your platoon? Yes. Um, I knew like I had been in fourth brigade for, I was in fourth brigade from the, when it was stood up to when it, they cut, when they case colors, like I knew everybody, uh, there and, you know, I think we went back to Garaban so we could like take a shower, you know, and shave our face, which is, I don't know if you could tell I was a twice a day shaver. <laughs> um, but like, I just got really lazy about that. Cause like white waste water, it's not that big a deal if we shave every other day or, you know, whatever. But like, so we go to Garaban, I took a shower and I shaved my face and, you know, I was like, fuck it. We'll go get on the computer, you know? And, you know, I was talking to family and, you know, a, I get an, you know, a Facebook message from a buddy and he's like, Hey, Clint Lawrence is coming to you. And I'm like, all right. So what about him? You know? Um, and you know, they're like, well, he's not tabbed, uh, you know, prior enlisted MP uh, does a really good job in the talk. And I'm like, all right, whatever. Um, but I was sitting that you know, with captain Swanson and he's like, Hey man, um, you know, what do you think about Lieutenant Colford? who was our Coist PL. And I was like, that would be the dude that I'd want. He knows the people. He's familiar with the area already. And he's right here. 
You know, we don't have to to bring him from brigade down. You know, he's right here. Um, so Captain Swanson and I went and talked to Colonel Howard. Um, and Captain Swanson's like, sir, you know, I know you've got a replacement for Laurent, uh, for, for uh, Dom Latino lined up. But, you know, why not just move Colford over? Right. Uh, he's already here, you know, same, same arguments I just said, he knows the area, he knows the people, you know, whatever. And uh, essentially Colonel Howard told us to shut up and get back in our box and mind our business. And we were just like, all right, that went about as well as we thought it would, but you know, we had to try. Um, and then when we went back, you know, we were told, you know, Lawrence would be there within a day or two and he showed up. Um, I had one interaction with him prior to that when I got, um, new soldiers. Um, I had to ha have them zero their weapons because they literally came into theater without having the ability to zero their weapons. And they were just like on, like they were detainees or they, they were on detainee guard for however many months at this point. And I'm like, well, we can't have you firing an unzeroed weapon. Uh, so we, we shot down to the big fob and Lawrence was the guy that opened the range. You know, he introduced himself, uh, you know, seemed like a brand new lieutenant. That's how I, that's how I felt about him, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, in retrospect, do you wish you had fought harder for that other lieutenant? Do you wish that you had made a bigger plea to the battalion or squadron commander to, to listen to you guys? Well, I mean, honestly, I'm surprised Swanson took me with him because I don't keep my mouth shut. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, it wasn't one of the finer things I picked, you know, I, I learned very well. Um, but I did, I opened my mouth quite a bit. Um, I, I, you know, I thought it was just a really dumb idea to, again, this was, Hey, an LT went down. This is an infantry Lieutenant. We got to get him in the, get it, you know, get him in the nitty gritty. Never mind the fact that we're coming to the last three months of this thing. We're at the tail end. We don't need new guys. You know, we, we don't need that. And that, you know, we, not for that reason, I should say. Like, we don't need a brand new lieutenant coming in who's shown that, yeah, would it be cool for him to walk out here and get a CIB? Sure, absolutely, right? But this is not the place to break in the new lieutenant. Like, that's honestly how I felt about it. This is not the place. If you want to do that, go send him somewhere else within the brigade, right? But don't send him here. Um, and, I, you know, I said as much. Uh, you know, Captain Swanson then broke it down into like officer ease. So Colonel Howard wasn't quite so pissed about me opening my mouth. Um, but, you know, again, Howard told us essentially to go fuck ourselves, you know, um, and that this was a decision that was above Colonel Swanson's pay grade uh, and that he needed to just toe the line. And we walked out of that meeting just like, well, all right. You know, I mean, you can't really argue with the squadron commander when, you know, he's of a mind and that wasn't, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't going to budge on it. I, I, I shake my head. Um, one, because I just don't operate in that world. Never have, never will. I'll always take the input from the people who are at the ground level and ask them for for their assessment. Um, if I can't trust those people to make those decisions, um, then I shouldn't have put them in the, put them there in the first place. It's just frustrating because it, it's that sort of logic that it's above his pay grade. No, it's exactly within his pay grade. He's the company yeah. commander. He's he, he's he's the troop commander. It is it is exactly his decision to provide me with a recommendation, the squadron slash battalion commander, on what he thinks is best for his unit because he ultimately deals with those people on a daily basis a lot more than I do. 
Um, yeah, and again, this was not the space to be breaking in a lieutenant like that. This was not it, you know? Like, we had lost Nick Olivas, uh from our sister platoon. You know, like, we, you know, we were taking it. We, we you know, we, we took 473. We took a lot of casualties for an element of our size. And what I've always appreciated about that is we always just came back and said, fuck it. Like, we still have a mission to do. Um, and, and like you, you know, referred to earlier, like you're kind of in that environment, you're going to do that, right? Like it's just, it comes naturally. And, and I think we were honestly doing it out of spite at that point, because we felt like we were the smallest maneuver uh, element within the brigade. And we got the largest slice of territory to cover, which yeah. made no sense, you know, um, you know, maybe, Colonel Menace, the brigade commander, saw something in us or, or you know, what, whatever the case was. But you really don't give your smallest maneuver element the biggest slice. Right. Because when, when we start, you know, going through that attrition process of losing, um, you know, soldiers, like we don't have a backfill. You don't have. Yeah. Well, losses backfill. become more vital. Like and I'm not minimizing any particular loss because everybody's vital, but. Uh, when the pickings are slim, it makes it a lot more difficult to ask more of less. Yeah. Uh, when you have a larger unit, it, it's easier to backfill. Um, and there are more people sort of with a wider swath of experience because you have a bigger pool to choose from. That's not, yeah. that's not the case when you're in a smaller unit. Yeah. And, you know, so like when we heard we were getting Lawrence, we were like, you know what? I, I sat down with Keith, you know, because he asked, like, how the meeting with Howard go? And I was like, how do you think it went, man? Like, <laughs> you know, like we, we knew this wasn't going to go well. Um you know, and uh, so he's like, all right, man, we're going to we're going to do whatever we can to kind of bring him in like that. That's what we're supposed to do. And I'm like, dude, don't worry about that. Like, <laughs> you know, we're just a bunch like we literally were just guys that like hung out with each other. You know, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like it, yeah. this wasn't going to be a difficult thing. We let everybody in and we had some fucking weirdos <laughs> in that platoon, you know. Um, and so the first day, like he does like a sit down individually with everybody in the platoon, like what do you see for your army career? Um, what do you expect from this deployment? You know, really <laughs> I expect to benign. survive. I'll worry about the rest of it later. Yeah. You know, it was like, <laughs> okay, dude, I just want to retire. That's all. Um, and you know, like, what do I want from this deployment? I want to go home and like drink beer and eat real food again. That would be a blast, you know? Um, and, but, you know, he sat down with everybody and asked them these questions and, you know, Swanson kind of gives him the lay of the land, but, you know, there was a big push the next day. So he stayed back because he was going to move out with second platoon. Right. And, and that's a thing like Lawrence's defense is like, well, he didn't left seat, right seat. him. No, but he literally had the acting platoon sergeant and the acting PL that had been doing this for almost a month. Right. Like we were there, you know, we can do that for captain Swanson, you know? So you know, we, we got him down there, uh, you know, day two or at the end of day one, we plan our first, you know, first patrol, like, Hey, we're going to push out early in the morning. We're going to go to, like, I told you one of those bombed out villages to the North of us. And we're just like, fuck, okay, let's do this. Right. Uh, and I let the guys know, and, you know, for my weapon squad, you had your ready bags ready and lined up at the front of the, the front of the tent, ready to go. Um, you know, all you were going to throw in there was the water that you, you know what I mean? Like you, we, everything was prepped, you know, that way I can get the guys the most sleep as I could. Um, then we woke up and I know I'll probably catch some shit for this, but everybody had to pound two bottles of water, 
during mission brief. Um, you know, I checked their socks, make sure everybody had clean socks on at least. Um, and then, uh, you know, we, we were ready to roll. Right. Um, and we, you know, like I said, I, I had been used to working, you know, kind of, uh, without adult supervision, right? Like that, I just, I'm a weapon squad leader. I'm the second senior enlisted guy in the fucking platoon at this point. Right. And I found this nice little hill where I had good observation. Um, and more importantly for me at the time, it was shaded, like it was right under a tree. Right. And since we were going to be out there for, you know, six, seven hours, I would like to have at least a little shade. Right. <laughs> like, but it gave me good observation and fields of fire from where, you know, where the line squad needed to go. So I got with Lieutenant Lawrence. I'm like, Hey, we're dipping out. We're going over to this, this hill. And he's like, no, you're not. And I was like, wait a minute, dude, we're not. He's like, no, no, you're going to move up to the village. And I'm like, so I can't see you and provide cover. And he's like, that's not your job. And I was like, that is precisely my job. <laughs> like, that's what weapon squad does. Right. And uh, like, I'm not even kidding you, man. Like we are like, I'm nose to nose with this dude at this point. And my AG, Anthony Reynoso, who's like five, four, <laughs> five, five, maybe he gets in between us and goes, Mike, now is not the time or the place. And I was like, Reynoso, I'm going to fucking kill you when we get back. And Reynoso just sit, he was, I apologized to him as soon as we got back, you know, because it was totally <laughs> unprofessional to do that, you know, but I, and Reynoso's just looking at me like, dude, I've heard this before. Just shut up. You know, <laughs> like you can't hit the PL on patrol. You cannot do that. <laughs> right. And I'm like, all right, cool. You so can hit him when you get back. Us. You just can't do it while on patrol. Yeah, you know, but he moved us. He moved us within like 150 meters of this village where we couldn't see inside. Like we could not see inside. And, you know, I'm, I'm listening on the radio. I got security up, you know, and I'm just like, you know what? This is how it ends, guys. We're out. There's there's four of us out here by ourselves. I mean, this is this is this is a great uh, you know target of opportunity here, you know, and Shiloh's just like, well, if we're going to go. I'm unloading everything and the off chance that we do survive and I have to carry all these rounds back. And I'm like, you know what? Fair enough, man. All right. Just don't melt the barrel. You know, it's just, <laughs> and you know, we, I hear my buddy Murray, he was the second squad leader. Um, you know, he's on the horn. He's like, Hey, you know, we're coming out. And I was like, well, it's about time. And um, you know, it was one of those big walled off little collots with the two swinging doors that had the catch at the bottom. And you know, they would put yeah. the chain where the handles, you know, right. So they come out, bebopping out of that. And, uh, you know, I'm just kind of watching them. And you could see the door catch at the bottom. It looks like a door catch at the bottom. And uh, he calls it up as an IED and then tells the ANA guy to shoot it with an RPG. Right? Lawrence did this. Yeah. Okay. Right? And I'm like, oh, fuck. This is, no, mm-mm this is not good. Right. This is, this is very bad. That's a false report. You know, like I can see it through an ACOG, like your, your, your very bland ACOG that we had while in the you know army, that that was a door catch. That's all it was. Right. And ANA did what he was told, you know? So we walk back, uh, you know, <laughs> we get hit right at the gate. And I'm telling you, man, the only reason I'm throwing this in here because it's funny. Um, like I said, Renoso 
and Carson were my two AGs. They were the only two qualified to shoot the Gustav. But like I said, Reynoso was super short. Um, so he puts the round in, lays it for direct impact, or uh, the delayed impact, you know, the five-second cook. And it, uh, he skips this thing. Like, I don't know how it hit where he wanted it to go, but he skipped it. And it just ballistics, and, and maybe it was the work of God or, or whatever the fuck, but he manages to hit the guys that are shooting at us, right? And I, I'm looking at Reynoso. I'm like, you literally skipped it like a rock. He's like, I don't know, man. I'm just that good. I'm like, okay, man. Um, <laughs> Better lucky you know? than good, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we get we get back inside after all that, you know, and I went to Keith. And I'm like, dude, there was no IED. He called up a false report, right? And Keith's like, are you kidding? And I'm like, no. And Chris is like, you know, Murray – uh, you know, is sitting there looking at Keith and he's just trying to tell him about the patrol, like about how big of a shit show it was. Right. And, you know, Keith's like, Hey, listen, I need you both to shut up. He just got here. You know, he's a new PL. We, we have to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I love Keith. Like I respect the shit out of that guy. And I'm like, all right, man. And I was like, this is on you though. You know, this isn't on, you know, I, I brought forward my concern early. Right. So, you know, that night, you know, we get, we get back, you know, we're, we're sitting there playing cards. You know, we asked Dale T to like, just come play spades. And he's like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm too busy to do that. Like the guy only slept like two and a half, three hours a night. Um, which we're like, dude, you can't live like that. You know, like you can't, that's, that's not existence. Um, I never saw him eat the entire three days he was with us. Um, and so that night he calls us in and he gives us this brief, Hey, we're going to go into Panzai. Um, we are going to set up, we were going to talk to everybody and tell them to come to the Shura. That's going to happen this coming Friday. Um, and, you know, we went through the, you know, the basics of it. Um, you know, I got with Keith and I'm like, Hey, if you need me to observe things, there's only like one building in the village that's got a roof that we can get on top of. So we'll, I'll grab a second mine hound. We'll clear our own path through the village. We'll get on the roof and I can observe. And he's like, yeah, you know, and Lawrence was like, fine, you know, just blah. right. So that night though, we, we get the weapons clean, you know, we, we do our job and I sat down, we get our ready bags laid out. And I told the guys, I was like, listen, if it doesn't come from me or if it doesn't come from Keith, just don't do it. You know, and they kind of looked at me and were like, well, what about the PL? I was like, don't worry about the PL. I was like, you listen to Keith, you listen to me. And that's, that's it. That's the long and short of it. Um, and then I took my AGs outside, you know, with a couple of the other team leaders that I had worked with. And I told them why, you know, um, you know, and I also made sure I, I put this out in no uncertain terms. Like that was just for my weapon squad. Like, I can't tell you guys the rest, but I wanted you to hear. He's calling up false reports. He's having ANA fire RPGs at door, you know, door catches and all this shit, you know. And so all of us are just like, Jesus Christ, right? So we wake up the next morning. And at like probably 4, 4.30. And, you know, again, same routine. Force hydrate, go over the mission, right? And then Lawrence comes out of the talk, you know, um, and it's like, hey, the ROE's changed. And I was like, I didn't see anything uh, about ROE changing, right? And then, um, 
you know, he's like, well, it came down from the Afghan, the KADAC command. Uh, and so we went over to the medic that we had with our Afghan squad, who probably speaks better English than you or I. I'm not even kidding. And, and he's like, we haven't talked to our KADAC commander in like a month. <laughs> and I was like, oh. So. Did you, you know, call Captain Swanson at all? I was on the horn with Swanson almost the entire day. Right. Um, but, you know, Lawrence is like, you know, here's the ROE. And again, I told the guys, unless you hear it from me, just don't, right? Like, just don't. Because I was going to have one gun team on the ground and my other gun team was going to be in a gun truck kind of masking our movement to give us a little extra ass out there. Um, and he starts going over the order of the movement and he puts me in the ass end of the formation. I'm like, that's not where you put a weapon squad. We go in the dead center, right? We provide you the most firepower, but you have to protect us on our way there. Like, that's how this works. Um, you know, I had never been put in the ass end of a formation before, you know? So like we're in the ass end and we're moving slow, you know, and you see this big plume of dust and we knew it was a motorcycle. Like, you know, it's, it's Afghanistan. This is what they ride. And, and, you know, the, the paths are only like, what a foot and a half across. So you're not bringing a, a car down there. Right. And that's when I hear on the radio, Lawrence telling the truck to fire. And I immediately, you know, got on the horn. I'm like, do not, you know, don't listen to that order. Don't listen to that order. And then I just start taking off towards his position in the formation. And that's when I heard the 240 go off. Um, and I'm like, son of a bitch. Like, I, I don't know. I, I can't see anything. Cause like I said, I'm in the ass end of the formation. And I told Keith, I was like, listen, we can do one of two things. We RTB or we move ahead, but we can't just sit here like out in the open. And he's like, all right, get up on the roof. So we cleared our path and we got up on the roof. Right. And I have my radio on, um, you know, I carried a, a <laughs> an ASIP because I kept breaking all like the, the fail stuff they gave me, mm -hmm. you know, but like I changed over to, to troop and I'm like, Hey, you know, I, I think something bad happened. I can't confirm, you know, standby. Right. And that's when my engagement happened where I had two guys pop up um, and we, we engaged both of them. Right. Uh, but I only gave authorization to fire after troop came back to me and said, Hey, we have wolfhound chatter saying that they see you guys. Uh, do they have a radio? Absolutely, they have a radio. That is engagement criteria, go ahead and fire. So I gave them the, you know, I told my boys, hey, engage, um, in which they did, right? So Keith came walking down the, the little path. I was like, what the fuck are you guys shooting at? And I was like, are you not monitoring troop? And he's like, no. And I was like, well, you know, I cleared it through troop. There was wolfhound chatter. These guys are watching us. And he's like, okay. He's like, but hey, man, I think two civilians got killed. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the village elder. One of, one of them was a the village elder. He's like, I haven't really been able to get eyes on uh, because everybody's like, you know, all the, all the locals, all the villagers are, are, you know, obviously very upset and pissed off, you know? Um, and Lawrence is like gesturing with his rifle and like telling the interpreter to tell you know, the mothers that if they don't get their kids out of here, that he was going to, you know, do physical harm to them or he was going to shoot them. Like all this shit's happening and being relayed to me through the radio. And I looked at Keith and I was like, dude, what are we doing? And he's like, pack your fucking ready bag, get off the roof and get ready to move. And I was like, all right. 
So that's exactly what we did. And getting back, you know, to the cop, we got hit again, right? And we get back there, man. And I probably smoked like 10 cigarettes and used the lighter once, man. <laughs> like, I was just like, oh my God, you know, like what, what is happening? Right. Let me, let me just ask you a question here before we, we go too far down the rest of what goes on. Um, what about that thing? I, I, I don't want to phrase it that way because it sounds stupid. I mean, I, what I, there's a certain sentiment of, hey, you know, the Afghans have taken out enough of our dudes. If a couple of them go away, even if they're civilians, what's the big deal, right? Like, there's a lot of soldiers who would have that mentality. Hey, it's better than an American. Like, you know, you can sort of rationalize anything away in combat to a certain extent that you want to within reason. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of this that conveniently could have been swept under the rug, right or wrong, and, and left it to the fog of war. Um, and, and I'm playing devil's advocate here. I, I But you seem to have the instinct that immediately you knew something was wrong. Was it the previous day's incident that had sort of set up the antenna? Or was this just as egregious as it sounds to the point where there was no objectifying that anything about this could be rationalized? I'm, I'm- Haynes got hit in that village, right? Mm-hmm. He, he got hit. But up to that point, we hadn't taken a lot of fire or hardly any at all when we were inside, right? The people had started kind of coming around to, I don't want to say our line of thinking, but they were, they were seeing that we were there and doing our best, you know, and that we were, we were genuinely had, we're, we're trying to help, right? And then you couple that with the day prior, for me anyway, where I didn't trust his judgment. Mm-hmm. you know and i mean th- we, most of our engagements took place you know 100 150 meters away from the gate like this guy wasn't that far out you know like you the dust cloud was hitting us in the face as they got closer and these people stopped like that was on the radio that they had stopped moving they had uh, uh complied with the afghan army's order to stop you know there was no barreling at us the only person that thinks that that bike was on the move still when they were shot is Clint Lawrence. You know? Yeah. I mean, it just, I'm picking up from you that, you know, the impact of this hits you immediately. Yeah. I mean, dude, like you said, there's a lot of rationalizing in it, but like I, like I said, I've lucked out and served with such great units, man. Like we didn't have issues like this. Mm -hmm. Right. Like for me, we did it the right way. And that's why I told the guys, this is how we do it. This is, we do it the right way. We don't shoot civilians. There is no, for me, I hate the term collateral fucking damage, especially when we're talking about small arms, right? I hate the idea of it to begin with, but, you know, when you're dropping, you know, missiles from, you know, drones and fixed wing and, and, and artillery pieces, you know, I get that. But like, if it's, if it's around, I'm firing, no. Like, I don't buy that collateral damage bullshit, especially when you are in that area where the only people around are either uh, uh, the locals, and they're not straying too far from the village because they get hassled by Taliban when they go further out. Or it's the people shooting us, and we can see them. You know right, what I mean? Like, right. I mean, it, there's a clear line from that, from that standpoint. Yeah, you know, so when I hear, you know, because uh, I've, I've been dealing with this for, you know, almost 10 years now, 
You know, people like to use that collateral damage. Dude, fuck you and your collateral damage. You know, these are people, you know, and I, and I get it. You want, you want the American forces to be safe. That's fine. I get that. I understand the sentiment. But the job is dangerous to begin with. Um, that doesn't give a, a, an American service member any right to just go shooting at another person who has every right to live as we do. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the collateral damage thing makes sense. I always, you know, in my first deployment, 05 to 06, the, the, the idea of warning shots was allowed. Um, and I always, I told my guys, I, I don't believe in that. Uh, a weapon is meant to put a round on target. If it's good enough to fire, then it better be a target. There, there's no reason that there should be a warning shot, right? I mean, if, if you're at the point where you're ready to pull the trigger, you should have positively identified a target that is worthy of putting a round on. Uh, there's no. no reason to just aimlessly fire and hope for the best to try to scare somebody. So I, I sort of get where you're coming from with the collateral damage from small arms uh, making sense. All right, so you, you, the magnitude of this whole thing hits you, uh, and you're talking about it with, with Keith Ayer as the platoon sergeant. What, what, what does the conversation continue? How does it go on? Well, dude, I, I, I smoked my last cigarette, went inside the talk, and Lawrence is literally at the table, um, just like happy as can be. And I'm like, dude, what the fuck are you smiling at? Like, what? It's like, this isn't good, man. You know? And the thing is, before we pushed off, one of my, one of my machine gunners was a guy named Shiloh, and he was one of the, the 13 Bravos I was telling you I got. Like, he was like, dude, I want to reclass and go infantry. This is what I want to do. But he was a big boy, right? And his AG had worked with him. He cut all this weight, and we were going to go up to Garaban and height and weigh him uh, to get his, re- you know, his, his uh, uh, reclass packet started. So I told, I told Lawrence right there, I was like, I'm going up to troop, and Captain Swanson is going to fucking hear about this, right? Um, and he's just like, well, how do we spin this? Like, how, how do we fix this? And I'm like, dude, there's no fucking fixing it. And then Dan Williams, who was one of the staff sergeants, uh, he was tracking everything through the, the uh, base defense kind of operations thing. Like they put up a bunch of cameras and shit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was like, sir, that was not a justified, that wasn't a justified kill, you know? And, uh, you know, I let Lawrence know. I was like, dude, this is your ass and I don't feel bad about it. You know, you were in the wrong. You know, so I got Shiloh together. I filled up two trucks and we went back to Garaban. And I, uh, uh, Skelton, who, and, and you know, before he joined the military, was like a sheriff's deputy. Like he was, he was like our coist guy. Um, he took everything that he pulled off the two dead bodies um, and gave it to Captain Swanson before I could talk to him. You know, like Skelton did the right thing. Um, because Lawrence called up and said that he couldn't search the bodies because they were pulled away. Which, again, this is another fucking fabrication on his part, you know? Mm-hmm. So Captain Swanson came outside, and dude, like, he comes outside and is like, yo, Mike, um, did this really happen? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, he's like, you know, this is going to be bad. And I was like, well aware. So he uh first Sergeant franco came to me and he's like everybody on that patrol you get their asses up here right now at this like right now uh so i got on the horn i called keith up he starts getting everybody ready we're sending two trucks to bring you know everybody out in the patrol back and forth Did, and was lawrence it. included in that oh yeah okay oh yeah um and the thing is is 
Pat, you know, Swanson went up to Lawrence, uh, essentially was like, Hey, sit down here in this tent, uh, you know, away from us. And he's like, I got to call this up. This has got to go higher. Um, so, uh, Swanson and Chuck Tinsley, who was the XO printed off all these sworn statements and bought extra paper. And he's like, guys, I need you to write sworn statements. And we did, you know, mine was like seven or eight pages long, give or take. Um, and literally the next day, uh, major Washington was appointed the 15th, six investigating officer. Um, and, uh, you know, that's when, you know, that that's when shit got real bad for, uh, not just Lawrence, but for me and my gun team, because, uh, they took our weapons. They sent us to, uh, squadron HQ where we were interviewed by, uh, a reserve CID unit from California and they were going to charge us with murder because uh, our, apparently our engagement violated the rules of engagement because radios were no longer engagement criteria. Oh, but so your they, engagement on the roof you're referring to, not the yeah, motorcycles. Yeah, yeah. So the, you, the were, you, you were being charged with a completely separate crime. Yes. Um, but what they never sent to us was that, yes, the rules of engagement changed, but they didn't notify us. Yeah. Okay. There's one, one small minute detail. Yeah. yeah. Right. They, they said that they put memorandums out. Um, I lived in this shitty little strong point where literally the only way for, for months, we can only communicate through BFT text messages. Like, okay. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, uh. sorry, I didn't check my global. Yeah. My, my blue force tracker never works. So I didn't even bother communicating through yeah. text messages, but neither here nor there. Yeah. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like this yeah. is, this is what they tried to tell us. And um, I got this real dickhead, uh, you know, because you don't know their names. Um, but like <laughs> the first interview, like at the beginning, I noticed his rifle, like kind of leaned up against the tent and he had his, he had a CCO mounted backwards. Um, and I was <laughs> got to like, be a good feeling. <laughs> yeah. I was like, bro. Uh, I was like, who are you going to shoot with that? Yeah. Before we start the interview, can I just ask you a question? How, how, how yeah. does that work? Okay, you know, and I know I'm you're here to like, ask the questions, but let me just get one out of the way real quick. I got to dip in and he's like, well, you know, technically this is a government building. You shouldn't be using tobacco. And I just kind of looked at him um, and he like slides this charge sheet with my name and murder on it. And I'm like, what the fuck? And he starts, you know, I, I was like, dude, I got nothing to hide. I didn't do anything wrong. All right. And, uh, you know, he's asking yes or no questions. And uh, then he starts wanting more in-depth stuff. And he, he makes this kind of offhand threat, like, um, you help us out so, you know, your soldiers don't get in trouble as well. And I'm like, no, bullshit. I was like, I'll change my statement right now and say, I pulled the trigger. I was like, you're not going after them, right? He's like, are you saying you're going to perjure yourself? I'm like, dude, you're trying to hit me up with murder. What's lying? Who gives a shit? You know, I was like, <laughs> you know, I was like, I don't care. I was like, but you're not going after them, you know? And he's like, well, you know, we can. I'm like, no, you won't. I was like, I just told you what I'll do, you know? Like, <laughs> you know, and he just, he got really pissy. And then I was like, you know what? I want, I want an attorney. And then I come to find out because it's all in the trial transcripts. The, the fucking squadron sergeant major and the squadron commander said we were all being assholes because we wanted legal representation when we're being questioned by CID agents. Oh, man. Right. 
I just the, the 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 leadership makes stuff like that so much worse. You know, uh, support the process, all of it from start to finish. That's why it's the process. Uh, there's no reason to to try and and push it one way or another. Um, so when you had made the decision that you were going to go to troop to. Did anybody try to talk you out of it? Did, I mean, was there any con- conversation, whether it was with, you know, Sardinaires or anybody else, or you just made this decision unilaterally on your own to go, I'm done with this, and, and I'm, I'm reporting it right now? Oh, well, I mean, Keith, at that point, he couldn't, like, he couldn't fight back against that. Like, he saw it with his own two eyes, that right. this guy is calling up false reports, he's lying to command, and then you have him shooting, you know, giving the order to shoot two fucking civilians, again, one of which was the fucking village elder. Right. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is bad. This isn't just like kind of bad. This is bad, you know. Um, so, you know, I, you know, Dan, Dan Williams immediately agreed with me. Murray said, yeah, you know, um, rule was our other squad leader. He was the corporal and he was like, yeah, dude, you have to go. What you about know? the kid who pulled the trigger on the 240? Shiloh? Yeah, dude. When I talked to him he was in a, like, he was a mess. He's like, dude, Sergeant, like, I just heard you know, a bunch of yelling over the radio. And then the last thing I heard was, you know, the LT telling me to shoot. And I was like, dude, like, that's, that's not on you. You know, like that you should not have been put in that position, you know? Um, because after he fired the first shots, a kid came up and Lawrence was telling him to shoot the kid. And Shiloh was like, I'm not doing that, sir. That you know? is beyond, it's beyond comprehension. Um, have you spoken to Shiloh at all? I mean, where is, do you still keep in contact with him? He's one of the guys that kind of fell off once he got out of the army. Yeah. Uh, I talked to him about a year ago, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a little longer uh, after Twist died. So yeah, a little more than a year. Um, but, uh, you know, he's he's got a job, he's doing well. He's just like, dude, I, I don't want to be associated with this shit. You know, he's like, yeah. I don't tell anybody I was ever in. You know, I, he's like, I just go, I live my life, you know, and I respect that. M- more on that later. A uh, lot to unpack there. Um, but all right. So you're being questioned for murder. Is there a part of you that's sitting there jumping up and down going, dude, we're, we're not here to talk about me. I- I'm here because I wanted to talk about what I saw the other guy do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that's what I brought up. And then I was told that's a whole other investigation. So I was like, all right, well, when can I like go interview for that one. You know, they were just like, well, you better take care of yourself first. And I was like, all right, dude, cool. Um, I finally got my attorney. I didn't even get to meet the woman. Uh, I had to contact her through global. Um, and she was representing like me and like two, the, the, or the three others that were on my gun team. Because like when I left that, the, the initial interview, after telling them I want representation, I went right to them and they're like, all of you request representation. Did, did somebody tattle on you? Did Lawrence tell back on you guys about what happened on the roof? I, I have a feeling he did. Like, is that I, how this all came? I, do we, I do can't you know? confirm anything. Okay. I, I've got, it's all, it's all just my thought process. And, and maybe I am a, I, I should, I'm not an unbiased uh, person to ask here. Right. <laughs> um, you know, but like, well, I think then I'll do it, say it this way. In your opinion, do you think he told on you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I and in my, I, I really think he did to draw heat off himself, because I don't think it. I, I know for a fact it didn't register what he did when it first happened. Like when we went back to Garaband, right? He just thought it's, you know, like you said, we'll 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 justify this and sweep it on the wrong, and it's not going to be a big deal, right? 
No, because when all those sworn statements came out, right, they all essentially said the same damn thing. You know, covering his, honestly, inability to do his job and all the crimes he committed, right? Because it wasn't just giving a, a legal order. It was changing the ROE, which, yes, I know he gets exonerated on. But when I think eight of us said that we heard it right from his mouth, the only thing that got him off on that charge was Keith saying he doesn't recall hearing it. <sighs> right? But he filed multiple false reports. You know, he, he, he just... Again, he shouldn't have fucking been there. You know, I wish I wish Colonel Howard would have listened, but that's neither here nor there. You know, but well, it kind of is here or there. But again, yeah. it's there's nothing you can really do about it. Um, yeah. Which is why I harped on it a moment ago when we discussed it because you know you don't hear his name ever brought up in this whole thing. You'll never hear Colonel Howard's name tied to any of this. When in reality, he could have prevented it all. If he had you listened know, to it, and, and that's, you know, as a senior officer, that's my frustration with this whole thing is that that sometimes it's shut your mouth and move out, you know, because I'm the boss, which may be fine and okay in certain scenarios. But in other ones, there are second and third order effects to that shut the hell up and move out kind of deal that uh, we don't ever hold that person accountable for. And and yeah. so, yeah. I mean, I, this, this is the shitty part, man. I'm not even kidding you. Like probably four years after it happened, like... Um, you know, this is after, you know, I got out of the hospital and like, I was getting my life in order, but like my career is essentially done, you know, like he hits a bunch of us up on Facebook. Like he had retired at this point. Cause you know, he's not getting promoted again. You know, that, that came from his unit, you know, his career is done. Yep. Um, and he was like, he sends this like heartfelt apology and I'm like, dude, guess what? You're out of the army. Get fucked. <laughs> you know, like you could have helped us. You could have protected yeah. us. Yep. And that's just his job. By, just by being an advocate, yep. right? Just by advocating for us, you could have helped us. And you didn't. I was like, you and fucking Gustafson sat back and watched it happen. And then threw Keith and I under the bus. Yeah. I mean, that, you know? that, that, I, it, I don't even know how to, I'm just trying to be empathetic to you in this spot, but you know, it is frustrating beyond all belief. Um, when stuff like this happens, it's only one or two people who ever really end up taking the fall for it. And uh, many of those in the chain of command don't. Um, and really, it, the chain of command works both ways. It's up and down. And when something happens, everybody along that chain should bear some responsibility for it and some accountability for it. And the fact that we sort of draw the line somewhere with some plausible deniability, well, I, I wasn't there. I, I, I didn't do it. You know, like I... I I put him in charge, but I did, what else am I supposed to do? Like I, I've even uttered those words at times. Like, what am I going to do? Like, you know, well, I'm the freaking boss. So yeah, it falls on my plate. There's, there's no, you have to accept that you're responsible for everything that happens and fails to happen. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I get it, man. I mean, I, I, I don't want to underscore that, you know what? That's why I asked before about it, that whole conversation, because Again, as somebody who sits in those positions and can make those decisions and give you the shut the hell up and move out, there's there we can't abdicate the responsibility for those decisions. Yeah, I mean, it's and that's the thing, whether you're a team leader with only three people under you or you're a fucking, you know, squadron uh, commander, squadron commander, yeah. like you're still responsible for the like you said, what happens and what doesn't happen when it comes to your subordinates. It, it, like it, it's it's your bag, man. You got to carry it, you know, and um 
you know, and that, that sucked because like, dude, they, they isolated all of us after that. Like we had another like two months left in theater at this point. I got stuck in the B-Doc. Um, still wasn't allowed to carry a weapon. It took them like three weeks for them to get me a pistol. Um, which trust me, your asshole hasn't puckered till you've been in a war zone with literally zero means to defend yourself. I have rocks in my canteen cup just in case. Um, (laughs) you know, so and that, and it sucked because like in the B doc, they, they depend on these balloons. They were never up. So I literally just sat for 12 hours a day, staring at a blank screen. Um, and then I would go to the gym and I would go to sleep and I rest and repeat for two months. Um, and the kicker of all this, the fucking kicker is we finally start redeploying. I get sent to Kandahar. Uh, I get put in a tent with Keith and a couple of my other buddies. So I'm feeling okay. Right. Um, I get told I'm going to be put on the last aircraft back and guess who's going to be on that aircraft with me. Clinton Ranch. Yep. And I fucking threw, I'm not, dude, I went full fucking toddler and was like, there's no fucking way I'm getting on that aircraft with him. You can just leave me right here. I will just stay in Kandahar. You know, like I'm not getting on a plane (laughs) with that guy. Um, Did you end up getting on a plane with him? No, no. Okay. Uh, believe it or not, Jeffrey Howard made sure I got swapped to one flight later. So, the, or uh, one flight earlier. So that was nice. Yeah. Um, uh, let, let's put the Lawrence stuff aside for a second. Your particular case, how does it end up sort of adjudicating and what happens? I mean, obviously you never were charged with murder and you never went to, to Leavenworth. So what happens in that particular instance? Well, for two months after we got back, like I got shoved in a training room, right? Uh, not even really allowed to do the training job because I'm under investigation. Um, I'm, I'm angry because this thing happened. I'm angry that I got thrown on the bus. And even more so, I'm angry because I finally got orders to go to Vicenza and they got canceled because I was under investigation, right? Oh, wow. So like, I'm like 10 shades of fucking butthurt at this point. Um, and I keep asking the new commander because I'm not kidding you. Captain Swanson was gone within three or four weeks when we got back. And oh, by the way, nothing happened to him in any of this, correct? No, no. Uh, Captain Swanson fought his ass off for us, though. He was the only, only man that was trying, like, actively shielding guys like me and Keith and the other guys on my gun. That's team. good to know. And essentially the entire platoon. He was the only one that stood up and did anything. Um, and the thing is, is like he never publicized that, right? Like he didn't do that. And he and I are still very good friends. Well, that's um, good. And uh, you know, I had I had to tell the guys that. You know, because they were like, well, what about fucking Swanson? I'm like, dude, you guys didn't see what he did for us or what he tried to do for us uh, because he was going to do it quietly. It's it just it's not his personality to to be. You have an example of, of something he did of how he went to bat for you guys? You know, he just I mean, he he fought because Keith and I ended up getting Gomars uh, essentially for not for failing to stop uh, Lawrence and what he did and for not. uh, uh not staying in accordance of the rules of engagement for the engagement I was on on the roof, right? Um, you know, Swanson fought hard to not, he's he just like, no, that's ridiculous. You can't blame the two senior NCOs for failing to stop a lieutenant who made these conscious decisions to do these bad things. Yeah, that's, you know, that's collateral damage, right? Like, that's just, that's stupid. We're, that's punishing people for the sake of punishing people to make it sort of fair and, and make it sort of balanced so we're not putting all the blame on one person. Which is asinine. It's it's okay to put the blame on one person when it's one person's fault. Yeah, I mean, and the thing what kicked up what it was weird is like within the span of that first two months back, man. Uh, Captain Swanson gets moved out, right? Um, our squadron command team swaps out, and the brigade command team swaps out. Oh. So nobody there that is like the the colonel that signed my Gomar 
has no idea who the fuck I am. One of the first things he affixes his signature to as a brigade commander are Gomars for two NCOs who he's never even met. He's never even interacted with. Um, and it was just like, you know, he, he had us there at attention and he puts us at parade rest and he's like, guys, I've only heard about this, this entire situation, like through second and third hand sources. I'm sorry, but you know, here's your general officer uh, memorandum of reprimand, you know, these, and of course it happens right around the time they eliminate the restricted file for NCOs. So he and I are kind of fucked, right? Um, they were permanently filed. It wasn't a temporary file. No, it was permanently filed. Um, so I'm just like, okay. And the command sergeant major pulls me in his office and was like, Hey man, this sucks. Uh, I'm going to give you five minutes to just say whatever you want. Go ahead. And I did, I went off for like four minutes and 53 seconds. And then I saw him just, you know, tapping his watch and I went back to parade West and shut my mouth. Um, and he's like, Hey man, if you just work hard, you know, you can get past this and you could tell on his face that he's saying that because he's, he has to, he was full of shit. Yeah. 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 You know, like it, you can't, it's hard to get over Gomar, yeah, um, it is. <laughs> you know? So like I, again, I'm isolated from everybody still. Um, we're waiting for this trial to start. And I just, dude, I couldn't handle the shit anymore. Like I was not mentally prepared to deal with uh, the fact that I have two dead civilians uh, who, I mean, at the time I was like, I failed to stop that happening. Right. Um, and then on top of that, it's like, I have no support structure anymore because I'm not allowed to, I'm not even allowed to speak to the other people involved because we're under gag order. Right. Like, so like, I'm just flapping in left field and, um, you know, I, uh, pulled off my truck off the side of the road on post, uh, and put a gun in my mouth. And, uh, you know, this kid <laughs> PFC MP just taps on the window and I'm just like, what, you know, I turn and there's a gun in my mouth and, you know, that kid saved my life. Uh, and he stayed with me in the hospital afterwards, uh, until the next morning when the shift ended. Um, but I, that was my breaking point, man. Like that was it. Um, you know, and, uh, I was, you know, like I said, I was in the hospital for about a week and the mental health, uh, doc, she came up, she was Lieutenant Colonel and, you know, she's like, Hey, we're going to sit down and talk. And I was like, fine, you know, we'll, we'll fucking talk. You know, I, I just, I didn't know what to do anymore, man. You know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, she was like, did you really try and kill yourself? And I was like, listen, I, you know, I told her everything. And she was like, Jesus Christ, you're not messing around. Uh, and I said, no, no. I was like, if you put a 30 pound bag of gummy bears in front of me and said, if you eat all 30 pounds, like you'll be okay. I was like, I'm, I'm doing it. Like, I was like, I'm willing to do anything at this point. I was like, I can't feel this way anymore. You know, was it, and, uh, I'm sorry to cut you off. Was it the, the sort of fear or, or the feeling that you had failed was it the the innocent lives that were lost? Was it your personal case? I mean, or was it all these things that were just compounding you to this point where you couldn't take it anymore? Well, I mean, I, I'd say it was all those and then me not properly dealing with combat trauma from the first and second deployments. Yeah. You know, I ignored it. I just kind of pushed it away and fuck it. You know, I'll get to it. You know, like I said, I, I got focused in on training and I, you know, it, it all just snowballed on me and I, I didn't know I didn't have the tools to 
accurately fight that. Um, but, you know, she hooked me up with this great doc and, uh, you know, who literally was like, he started Vietnam as like a PV2 and retired in the early 80s as a brigade commander. You know, like he knew exactly, uh, I guess, the kind of tough love I needed. And he did. He gave it to me. There were days where he would sit me down and he would just be like, hey, man, are you working through your, you know, uh, are you using, you know, your, like your grief coping skills and all these other things that he's telling me to do? And I'm just like, nah. And he's like, dude, stop being a fucking bitch. You know, like he's just, he's like, stop it. He's like, I'm telling you how to start chipping away at this. He's like, this took years to, to, to add up. It's going to take years, years to take to away. Unpack, yeah. Yeah. You know, and he's like, it takes every step to do that, you know, and I was just like, oh, damn, you old son of a bitch. Like, you're really getting on me. Like, but that's what I needed, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, At this it, time it, in the hospital, were you, would you, did you have to testify or anything in, in the trial or? No, what I ended okay. up doing was I did a recorded and written testimony because I called his attorney a greaseball. So I was considered a biased witness. Oh. Um, so I gave like background you know, my, my written and recorded testimony was considered background. Um, do, do you kind of wish you hadn't called his attorney a greaseball at this point? No, no. Okay. Cause that first attorney was a greaseball and that second one's even fucking worse. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, it was probably for the best um, because I was angry and in a bad headspace mm-hmm. and I don't think I would have dealt with it. Well, you know, like yeah. I just honestly, I, I, I don't see how putting me on the stand would have like been, in the uh, same room with him would have went well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that was probably for the best, you know, uh, because like it, you know, the doc was right. You know, this is taking years to kind of work my way back from, uh, and I'm in a good enough spot now where I can talk about it, uh, in a mature manner, you know, like an mm-hmm. adult, you know, fuck it. When it first happened though, man, I would hear his name and just go into rages you know, like it was, it just, it, it triggered this visceral reaction in me every time I heard Clint Lawrence. And a lot of it was because like, I'm still in the same unit, like 473 reflagged the second back 501st shortly after we got home and went, got switched to first brigade because, you know, fourth brigade was disbanded. Well, I'm dealing with, you know, people on the battalion staff that are like, Lawrence did nothing wrong like right in front of me, not realizing that I'm one of the people that, you know, stood up and, and spoke out against them. Um, and it just got really, really hard uh, towards the end of my career um, to, uh, to deal with. Um, but, you know, for, but full disclosure, like the, the, day I, the night I tried to kill myself, I got charged with a DUI as well. So I applied that kid for saving me and also doing this job. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, uh, but that's, that was the straw, you know, that was it. Um, you know, it took a couple of years, like doing the process, but it was, it was for the best, you know, physically I couldn't do that job anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I have, I've had a lot of like back and knee problems, dude. You know how it is. Like I was sure. airborne for 12 years. Yeah. A lot of jumps. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, um, that's compounding honest, too, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and honestly it wasn't fun. I, I wasn't enjoying myself anymore. You know, mm. um, for me, like the, I had the best job in the world. I got to wake up every morning. I worked out, I hung out with my friends and I got to shoot guns all day. Right. That's great. And on top of that, I, you know, I was at the point in my career where, you know, like Sergeant majors would listen to what I had to say and, you know, battalion commanders, like it was, it was a nice little kind of like halfway point between me being that's not a 17 year old kid and that, you know, more seasoned soldier, but like, it wasn't fun anymore, you know? Um, 
and that's when like the threats started coming in, you know, especially after the, the, uh, the trial ended, you know, I had people like hit me up on Facebook saying they were going to kill my wife and kids. Um, you know, uh, I had other service members, you know, in the same division that were sitting there like, yo, you know, we're going to come and get you. Like, it was just fucking ridiculous. Were you able to sort of ignore that stuff or did it actually sort of rattle you a little bit? It did a little bit because when you're not used to it. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not judging by any stretch. I just, some people, you know, I mean, some people can just ignore the threats until, you know, it shows up on their front door. Other people take all that stuff seriously, which is fine, you know? Yeah. You know, but like if it would have been me, like, Hey, you're just going to come and get me. All right, whatever, dude. Good luck. I like my chances. I'm scrappy. But like when you go (laughs) bring in my, my kids and my family and stuff. That's the line, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, so as, you know, we get on, you know, me and a couple of the guys, we did the, the stars documentary Leavenworth, um, you know, they did big promos for this fucking thing. Right. Uh, like I got to go to New York city and go to the Tribeca TV festival to, to like support it, you know, which bad situation, but that was pretty rad. The food in New York's amazing. Um, as a native like, New Yorker, we kind of do food right, you know? Oh, dude, I did food tourism for the three, four days I was there. That's all I did, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, but I had people, like, calling my house all the time. And, like, I printed all that shit off. I recorded everything. And I took it to the county sheriff. And all the sheriff said was, listen, um, just don't shoot pizza guys coming up your driveway. That's all I ask. And he's like, if it's somebody threatening you, you know, that we've come to find out was one of these people that did it you're within your rights. And I was like, okay, thank you. At least I didn't, I was like, I just wanted you to be aware that there are right. people that are very upset with me. Um, um. <laughs> let's, let's go back for a second because you know, when he gets convicted um, and, and did you talk with other guys in the unit about their testimony about the trial after the fact, or you, you weren't in a good space at all to be able to do it. So you just kind of stayed away from it. I talked to them uh, clandestinely. Cause again, we were still in the gag. Like they, oh, really? they pulled, yeah, they, they went back to the traditional Rista formation. So Alpha and Bravo were all your calf scouts and Charlie was your, your infantry guys. And like I said, once we found out that fourth brigade was going away, you know, even then you have to move all the 19 deltas out to, uh, other calf squadrons since we're not going to be one, we're going to be an infantry battalion. So, you know, we kind of got spread out to hell and gone, uh, but you know, we would meet out in town and, and talk about it, um, just to have, you know, the only people we could safely vent about this was, was the people that we, you know, went, that went through it. Um, you know, and those were the only people that, you know, when I heard his name, I didn't get mad around because right, we're all right. dealing with the same shit. I mean, were you re- obviously relieved when he was, was convicted, correct? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I wanted, I, I wish they would have picked up that book and beat him with it. Um, but when I heard he was getting 19 years, I was like, you know what? that is better than nothing. Um, and I, I was okay with that. Right. Like that, that, that was like a, a big step on me coming to, to peace, you know, coming to terms with this entire thing. Um, like I wasn't even pissed off when general Clark reduced it by a year, you know, like I wasn't, he's still doing time. He did wrong and he's doing time. Right. Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, I, I can say I was at peace for, for a little while. And then I watched the fucking documentary. Um, and I don't want to say it like fired me up, but I, you know, the fact that he thinks that he's to this day, he did nothing wrong, you know, like that bothers me. 
you know, like what type of person are you um, to think you did nothing wrong when like literally there there's that those were, you know, a father and an uncle and, you know, like they had families. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that's fucked up. Well, I mean, even at the point where you can get that low and it still doesn't hit you that you're there for a reason, right? You're, you're, you're making little rocks out of a big rock for the next 19 years. Uh, and still at that point, humility hasn't hit you, which is sort of, you know, mind boggling that uh, you can be in prison uh, conceivably for what is now going to be half of your life as a 20 year old, you know, you spend the next 20 years in prison, 20 something year old. It's like, yeah, you would have spent more in your life in prison than not. And you still don't have the, the wherewithal to realize that, Hey, maybe I didn't do it the way it was supposed to be done. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, and like, I, I didn't really get mad at him until after the pardon. Um, because like, we got wind of it when, when twist died. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, twist, that was the, you know, we had Kerner who died of cancer. Yeah. I, I wanted, I wanted to ask you about all these guys because yeah. you know this, I mentioned earlier at the top about the, the, the platoon sort of being cursed after all this happened, you had a rash of guys, uh, who had, had died for one reason or another. You mentioned the cancer. Uh, I think one was a DUI accident. Um, and, and then, uh, twist. And, I've, and take I've his got own my life. feelings about Carson and Wool both. Well, I, I'd, I'd, I'd like you to just kind of yeah. t- to talk about them a moment. So just as, as callous as it sounds, run down the list, if you will. Yeah, I mean, Cal, uh, Kerner um, died of cancer that they only found after his IED injury, you know, and he was 20, 21 years old. Um, Haynes died from an aneurysm uh, that was likely caused by his injuries where he was paralyzed from um, like nipple down. Uh, armpit down, I believe, um, you know, rule got into an altercation where, uh, he ended up discharging his pistol into his own stomach. Uh, he bled out and died. Carson died in a, in a truck accident. Um, you know, and then twist shot himself. Um, you know, but I, I don't care, uh, what anybody says rule and Carson, uh, those were suicides. They didn't know how to deal with everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, they were doing the same things I was doing, you know, they were trying to treat everything with booze and, and not talking to, to anybody about it, you know, and it ate them up from the inside. And then, you know, you couple that with some other personal struggles they had, like, uh, you know, it may not have been a gun in their mouth, but the behaviors were leading them that, you know, it was suicidal behavior. Um, you know, and twist that, that was the one that, that, really hit hard because that kid thought he was going to save Afghanistan, you know? Um, and all he wanted to do was serve, like he was still in the reserves. He was a Michigan highway patrolman or uh, yeah, you know, and it's just, it's to the point now where if I get a phone call at like before 6am, it's because I got another buddy that I get to go put in the ground, you know? And it, it, that made me angry was like we get word that twist had shot himself and you know we're making the phone calls we're trying to get money together for people to make it up to the funeral you know we're trying to do all these things and uh the producers of the documentary called me up and they're like hey 
uh, Trump's looking at pardoning him and Goldstein and uh, Gallagher. And I was like, what? I was like, there's no way, man. There's no way. And, uh, you know, we go up to Michigan and keep in mind, I'm an Ohio State fan. So setting foot in Michigan was a big step for me. <laughs> um, you know, and we, we did it right. You know, we, we, we were there as much as we could for Twist Widow, you know, and his family. And, uh, you know, we got back and, uh, we, you know, I got back to North Carolina and my birthday was the following weekend. And, you know, my birthday is the 10th, Veterans Day is the 11th. And, you know, Dave and, and a couple of the other producers called again and we're like, hey, um, they're still looking at the pardon. And I was like, there's no, I was like, no, <laughs> you know, and they're, they're like, they're going to do it on Veterans Day. And I was like, oh, fuck me. Like, come on, you're going to ruin my entire weekend, you know? <laughs> um, and then that didn't happen. Uh, it was the following week that they decided to do it. And that pissed me off to see him released to like these adulating crowds, yeah. um, you know, making the rounds on Fox and friends and, and all those other, uh, you know, oh, he leveraged his position. I mean, yeah. And, and the media leveraged him, him for them. I mean, this was a parasitic relationship from top to bottom. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, was that, exploited. That, goes, that goes into his second attorney, John Marr, um, that dude, he is an experienced operator to say the least, you know, but like that pissed me off because like, you're going to let him <laughs> go out to this big crowd. You're going to let him go on television. You're going to let him be the fucking hero when he went to jail. Right. Like he went to jail and I, like you said, man, who, and he still didn't realize and still fails to accept you did wrong but he's a hero in, in my kids, my boys who actually did good work there and worked their ass off to make sure that they weren't running around fucking killing civilians. They get to go into the ground and no one gives a shit that pissed me off. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and, and it, it, you could tell the complete lack of humility because he embraced every second of it. I mean, th there, there could have been some semblance of, Hey, let me just get out and sort of fade into anonymity uh, quietly and just be thankful I can go live a life. Then there is catapulting it into, Hey, I'm going to be a household name for the rest of American history. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I think that is the egregious part. Um, and, and again, uh, I'm not going to debate, you know, the context of war criminals. Is that, yeah, I a hundred percent believe war criminals should be prosecuted and they should be held accountable for every single thing that they do because accountability publicly now for the military is like, you know, priority number one on every account, whether it's war criminals, whether it's sexual harassment, whether it's, you know, racism in the military, whatever. It's all about accountability for for the organization now. So 100 um, percent. But I, I, I can't get, I can't ever buy into anybody using the military for their own personal stardom because that in and of itself belies everything that we're taught and belies everything that we, we, we believe in. It's not about me. It's not about one person. It's about all of us. And you represent something a lot bigger than just yourself and commit a crime, get convicted of it, and then to, to go against every counter instinct the military has taught you um, in being pardoned, 
is is pretty gross and disgusting from where I sit. Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I laughed my ass off um, when because he got very active on Twitter to promote his book. <laughs> but he kept applying for jobs and kept getting shot down. And he screenshotted this thing from target and was like, what's going on. I thought with my pardon, it, like my record was expunged and target won't even hire me. And I'm not going to lie, dude, I got petty as fuck. And was just like, <laughs> like I, just, I was like, dude, fuck you. You, you can't know? even like, put on a red polo pal. Yeah. You know, like if this is, if this is the little bit I get, you know what? I'm going to take that. You know, uh, and what I find hilarious even is he's going to some second rate fucking law school uh, with no chance in hell to ever be a licensed practicing attorney. Like no one, no state is going to allow him to practice law. Yeah. Um, let me ask you about kind of where you are now, because what's done is done, right? He's not going back yep. in the clink. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you and the rest of the guys, when you talk about this, when it comes up, um, I, I know you're not at peace with it, but can you find a spot for it where it's comfortable? Yeah. I mean, that was the only way I was ever like we, the, everybody involved with like the article and the, well, the, the multiple articles and the documentary and all that. Like if we weren't, uh, you know, like you said, not okay, but like, it's, it's there. This is something that's happened. This is something that I'm going to be associated with the rest of my life. All right. I'm in, I'm in, we're in good headspace now, um, you know, to where we can talk about it, you know, and we can talk about our struggles, you know, cause I think that's, that's the other important thing to draw from this is look, all of us struggled with this, you know, and we lost people along the way. Uh, but, you know, you have guys that, you know, we're fighting to get better and to keep the memory of our buddies who aren't here anymore alive. Um, and this is a this is those good positive examples we can talk about for veterans who get out and are struggling, right? Mm. Because like I'm I'm kind of over the whole, you know, the vet bro t-shirt and coffee shit, right? Like you're not you're not helping anybody, dude. Like let's actually show people, yo, it's okay to suck. Well, we were all there once, you know, it's okay. But how do we bounce back from that? How do we get better from that? I think that is that is important, you know. 100%. Um you know, and I think a lot of my, a lot of the guys in the platoon, you know, they have done that, you know, like Zettel's getting ready to get out of the army. Uh, you know, he's, he's going to go, you know, start the next phase of his life. Renoso is like a, a, a t-shirt designer and a professional bodybuilder, uh, you know, fucking Morrissey's a first sergeant now. God forbid, I didn't even see that happening, you know, when I, when I got him as a E4, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of guys have just stepped in and done these great things. Uh, after having dealt with this and it, it is, it's a moral injury. Like how do you wrap your head around that knowing um, that one, we really couldn't have stopped it. Right. Right. We couldn't have stopped it, but how do you carry on after it happens? You know? Um, and, and, you know, a lot of guys have, it's taken us a lot, myself included to figure out how to, to deal with that. Me, dude, my ass is in therapy still once a week, you know? And I still work my, yeah, still work those, you know, those uh, grief steps, you know, like control, doing breathing exercises. I do a lot of yoga, you know, <laughs> like it, it, every bit helps, man, you know, and it's, it's, I'm so impressed by everything these guys have done. Uh, and, you know, they've only kind of made me better and helped me along with, 
me getting my shit together. So I am in a good enough space to talk about it. Would, uh, do you think that twist and, and the other guys would still be here if Clint Lawrence was never part of this equation? Yes. I mean, Kerner, it's hard to say. I mean, that right. poor kid, you know, cancer is right. I mean, you know. the, the, yeah, I'm talking about the guy, you know, the guys yeah. that you asserted all were, were suicides. Those yeah. three in particular, you know, I, I believe they would still be here, you know, because it's, you know, you and I have both dealt with loss like this. Guys who just, they didn't know how to wrap their hands around it to to fight through it, you know. Or they, they were so proud that they just thought going and talking to somebody or doing other things, you know, they couldn't do that, you know. But, like, I believe in my heart that they would still be here if, if uh, you know, he never was introduced into our lives. Where are you... Um with your military service at this point, as you said, I mean, you're never not going to be connected to Clint Lawrence. And, uh, you know, while the world may not know the name Mike McGinnis and its relation to Clint Lawrence, they'll always know his name. But every time you hear it, it's going to conjure up something. So where are you with your own personal service to the country? Um, are you let down by the by the army and the military? Did, did they abandon you when they weren't supposed to? Did they not back you up the way they were supposed to? How, how do you reconcile all that? I made a piece with the fact that I, I really believed higher headquarters was never going to help us early on. Right. Like I knew if they weren't going to, they wiped their hands clean of it, especially when I saw how quickly they did the, the battalion and brigade change out when we got home, like fuck the, the, the trial hadn't even started yet. They were still doing the investigation and they moved out two entire command teams. Which, which is, is so crazy because in reality, like, like you said, you weren't allowed to go anywhere because you were under investigation. The whole command team shouldn't have been able to move until the investigation was complete. That's how that's how I was led to believe by the 15-6 investigating right. officer. Well, that's typically standard operating yeah. procedure. Yeah. You know, but like I knew that they weren't going to help and and I made my my peace with that. But like right now, you know, and uh, to be brutally honest, I don't tell anybody I ever served. Um the people I met were the best part of my service. Uh, and that's how I look at it. I leave it at that. Um, you know, I, I was disillusioned with uh, the war after my, you know, the second deployment coming home. Hey, we got Bin Laden, but why are we still fucking around there? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and then seeing the toll it had started taking on all my brothers and sisters in uniform. I'm like, this isn't worth it. You know, like I've got guys like I'm, I turned 40 and I'm held together with duct tape and a prayer. I can't imagine. Right. Like guys like my buddy Sammy, who was wounded on the deployment, who's who's missing two limbs. Like I can't imagine, you know. Um, and it's just like, you know, I, I ask myself this all the time. You know, was the juice worth the squeeze? You know, and I'll tell you, no, not with my physical, you know, the, the, the physical issues I have and especially the mental struggles. I don't know, man, like. I'm so proud I got to serve with the guys I served with. That's what I'm very proud about, right? But the organization at large can fuck itself. I mean, if we're just being brutally honest, man. Tangentially, uh, with the proposed pullout of Afghanistan this year, did it sort of shake any feelings loose? Well, I mean, when I was still in school, because I I, I got degrees in journalism and history, when we first got the, the, uh, you know, I guess the, uh, the frago about, Hey, we're getting on Afghanistan in like 2019. I wrote a whole 
page in our school newspaper about it. Right? Oh, really? And uh, <laughs> send it to me. I'd like to read it. <laughs> All right. Yeah, not a problem. And I actually had the clipping. Um, but, uh, you know, I was like, this is this is this should happen a long time ago is essentially what I said. Um, and, you know, it was a big step because, like I said, I, don't, I never told anybody in school. I was just an old fucking guy going to college with a bunch of young kids, you know. Right. Um, but, you know, I let essentially let the entire campus know, you know, I have friends who who were affected so much by their service there with with what game you know what was what was the the payoff you know um you know and but that's that's essentially the argument it was this is a good thing we need to get out of there um and, and you know when i see people you know when i argue when i i don't want to say argue when i advocate for that that fact you know people are like what about the people there i'm like dude i'm gonna tell you right now if you really gave a shit about the people there you would have got involved with like an NGO or some other thing and went over there and actually helped them. I was like, so just take that argument out of your mouth and, and try, try me again, try something else. <laughs> okay. Because like I've been there, I spent almost three years of my life in that country and they are beautiful people. Uh, and I feel horrible for what they've had to endure for 45 years, you know, but having the United States there is not going to stop anything and it's not going to solve anything. You know, it's been that way for 2000 years. Yeah. You know, and on top of that, what, it, you know, I, I can't remember who wrote it and I wish I did because I'd love to like give them the credit for it, but you know, we didn't, you know, this war isn't 20 years old. It's not one 20 year war. It's 21 year wars, you know, mm-hmm. like nobody, yep. there, there's no continuity. There's, there's nothing. This, this was not going to end well for us anyway. Right. And, and so that's, that's how I look at it, man. Like, I'm not going to lie. I, I'm, you know, I've, I've spoken out against recruiting in high schools. Um, you know, again, I think we should have a, a little older uh, people if you want to serve. Hey, I can't say anything about it. I did it for a long time, but I think you should be older. You should not be an 18 year old kid. You know, it's a lot um, to ask of a kid that young. Yeah. We don't, you know? we don't realize what we put them through at such a young age. You know, like I just, for me, the service is something I did. What's more important for me is being a dad you know, being uh, a, a good journalist, which I'm still working on, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm studying to take the LSAT, you know, I want to go into to labor law, um, you know, like those things are way more at the top of my list uh, of things that are important to me than being a vet, you know, um, and would it have been different if, if this shit didn't happen? I don't know, maybe, possibly, most, most, you know, more than likely, but that's not how it is now. Um, you know, and I, trust me, I catch hell from the community about that all the time. You know, they're like, well, why, you know, why, why do you feel that way? Well, dude, go ahead and just do a couple years after 2012 in my shoes and then come back and talk shit to me, you know, like, (laughs) well, on its basic premise, um, you ended up on it being punished and having the, thing that you love the most taken away from you because you did the right thing. And that sentence doesn't add up. It's not supposed to add up that way, especially in an organization that is, and I'll air quote this here, value-based the way the army is. Um, And and I I, I don't say, I say it a little bit tongue in cheek and sarcastic, but you know, I've been doing this 22 years. um, And, and there are people who live the army values. There are other people who don't. And guess what? They collect the same paycheck. Uh, every 15th and 30th of the month. And so that's problematic. Um, and, and 
I don't say, I, and, and I would never say that people in our organization are infallible. Uh, and at the same respect, I don't think being perfect should be the enemy of good. In any organization, you're going to have bad seeds. You're going to have bad apples. You're going to have bad actors. I mean, there's you're never going to root out everybody who is going to bring some sort of negative influence in. But the people who do right and the people who stay right and the people who follow right should never be punished for doing so. And that's the, the other collateral damage for this is that yourself and your platoon mates who all had the personal courage, again, army value, and the integrity, army value, and the honor, here we go, you know, I'll throw them all in there if I can get them in there, um, <laughs> to, to do what you did, um, it was thrown back in your face at the highest levels of our organization. Problem. Problem. Difficult. It, it, it's, it's, as a parent, it's counter to what you teach your kids. You know, yeah. kids tell the truth every single time. And guess what? I'm still going to do the exact opposite of that that outcome that you expect. Now, that's not the way we teach our kids. I mean, but that, that's been a structural uh, issue within the military for a long yes. time. When you have yeah. a command, a, a rank based organization, that 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 possibility always exists, always yep. exists, always. Um, so you don't tell people you serve. Um do you think you'll get to a place one day where you tell your kids about it? Well, my kids, my, my daughter's 12 and she remembers me being in the military. My son's a little younger, but he doesn't really. Yeah, but they don't, I mean, was, they don't know your experience, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I give it to them. Uh, you know, they asked what I did, you know, and I said, I was an infantry guy. And they were like, well, what's that? And I said, oh, I was one of the idiots that went out and directly got shot at. Uh, you know, and they were like, why did you do that? Isn't there like desk jobs? And I'm like, yeah, yeah there is. And his I dad had a couple of screws loose in his younger, in his younger yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. You know, but I, you know, I told him, um, you know, that, uh, you know, some things happened in my career. Um, and when you're older and if I deem it, uh, you know, important for you to know, we can talk about it, but I don't want my kids to know I went through that, you know, like, I, I don't want that. Um, you know, it's just like it's for a long time, it was hard to talk about this because you got the look, you know, people are like, oh, you know, they, they either felt so sorry for you or they just wanted to rip your face off because you betrayed your your PO. Right. And it's just like, you know, I don't it, it, there's a there's a lot going on with this, man. You yeah. Know? And, and, you know, so I just I choose not to like if, you know, if somebody listens to this and sees me on the street and asks me about it, sure, we can sit down and talk. Um you know, because I'm at that spot in my life, you know, but like for my kids, I don't ever want them to, to look at me differently, you know? So maybe if they get, when they get a little older, sure, we can sit down and talk. I'm just worried that one of them's going to pony up the money and go get stars when they move out of the fucking house. And then I, I have no choice because it's just going to be right there at the push of a button. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, the betrayal thing is, it's interesting you bring that up. Um, because betrayal is is sort of can be applied to many different things in this. Um, let's start with the most basic betrayal um, of the oath of office that that Lawrence took. Right? I mean, there, there's a betrayal there to uh, follow the orders of the officers appointed over you, and clearly none of the orders were to shoot civilians. That's always been there. Um, the I don't call what you guys did a betrayal. I call it doing the right thing. Um, but then the betrayal again of your higher chain of command. Who left you guys out there to dry? I mean, it's 
it, it, it's funny how, again, in a uh, honor-based organization, uh, there seems to be lacking a lot of honor on multiple fronts in this whole situation here. Uh, and, and again, also counterintuitive. Uh, w- when you hear the idea that you betrayed your unit or your PL, um, how does that resonate? What's the reaction there? Well, I mean, now I just laugh like directly right. in people's faces when they say it. Um, you know, like, because honestly, you know, I, I get, say, say there's 10 people that think that way, right? Two of them actually served, you know, and I get it. You're going to have strong feelings about it. That's fine. You know, sorry, they're fellow veteran, go about your day. Then you have the other eight, right? Who read like uh, Don Brown's book, which is like the scribblings of a small child with a law degree that he just threw into like 180 pages. Right. Um, you know, and then you have uh, a lot of the people that just kind of read news clippings or, uh, you know, just are so pro America, uh, but then, you know, they themselves have never served. Right. So, but they're, they're like armchair quarterbacks or armchair generals and shit like that. Right. Them, I just, I will, I will give the time of day to laugh directly in their face. Uh, like, I just like, you should have no strong feeling about this, man. Like, uh, Clint Lawrence is is nothing to you. Like, honestly, if it didn't yeah. fit into a certain narrative in your head, if it didn't fit into a political a space, it wouldn't, it yeah. wouldn't be a big deal. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. that's the other. Given the the politically charged climate we're in, that that this whole thing sits in. Unfortunately, again, because the politicization of the military is a is a major issue that we're struggling with. Um, I want to ask you, did, has anybody reached out to you, um, you know, higher ranking people, people who uh, anonymously served or anything? Have, has anybody ever reached out to you and just said, thank you for having the courage to stand up and do what you did? Well, the first battalion commander I had when we rear flagged in 2501, Colonel Mark Purdy, mm-hmm. um, I'm always going to appreciate that man because he pulled my ass out of the training room when he saw the MTO and was like, why is a fucking staff sergeant sitting in your training room? And why isn't he training soldiers? So my first sergeant was like, well, I guess we're going to throw him to a platoon. I ended up working for another staff sergeant that only had like eight years in the, in the military total. And he's like, Hey man, you know, my name is Brian Rutz. I'm like, Hey boss, what do you need me to do? You know? And it was a great fucking working relationship in the first field problem we do. Like I'm training brand new kids on, on, you know, machine gun tactics, which, you know, I don't give a shit what anybody says to run a good machine gun team takes a lot of work. It's not just point and shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, we, we ran four iterations uh, straight, you know, complete with breaking everything back down, moving back out. That way we can reset up the ground mounts, you know, walk everybody through everything the way we're supposed to. And Colonel Purdy pulled, you know, pulled me aside that night after we finished up. And uh, he's like, you know, you know, Mac, thank you uh, for, for being willing to do this because he's like, you could have just told me to go fuck myself. And I said, sir, one, no, I couldn't. Uh, I've already been in enough trouble the last few years. The last thing I need to do is tell the new guy to go fuck himself. <laughs> um, and two, you know, hey, like I, I'm getting a chance to train soldiers again. Like this is, this is the fun part of the gig. You know, and uh, he was just really cool about it. And he tried. He tried like hell to keep me in. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, you know, I even sat down and asked him. I'm like, don't stick your neck out on this one. Don't do that. Um, because if, you know, I, you know, I was like this. I was like, this whole thing's bad. Right. 
and what I did was wrong. And I can't tell anybody how sorry I am for what I did. You know, I, I put people's lives at risk. I fucked up bad. I accept responsibility for what I did. And this is what the army is now. Like this, this is how it goes. I shouldn't get special treatment just because, you know, I was, I, I needed to go to the hospital. Right. I was like, that should have happened years ago. Not just that night, you know? So, I mean, he, he was just like, well, I, I feel like I have to do something. I'm like, sir, all I'm saying is don't stick your neck out on this one. Okay. Don't, don't be that guy that tries to keep a DUI guy. in. You know, like, don't, right. don't do that. But he was, he's always been there for me. Always. How much you talked about uh, putting people's lives at danger uh, and you're referencing your DUI and everything else. Um, how much do you blame yourself for those two innocent Afghans who were killed? I mean, for a long time, I blame myself directly because I should have just ran up and beat the shit out of them. Like that's, that's, yeah, but that wouldn't was. have stopped it. You know that, right? Yeah. yeah. Like you, know? you physically couldn't have gotten there in time. <laughs> yeah. But you know, at a certain point I realized like, I can't, I couldn't control everything and I still can't. And that's okay. Um, and it, again, years of therapy, got to undo all that stuff. Right. Um, but I mean, I, I learned, I slowly learned that I, I like, I couldn't have stopped twist. You know, I couldn't have stopped Nick. I couldn't have stopped rule. I couldn't have stopped those things. Uh, what I can do, you know, is, is, you know, miss those guys. What I can do is be sorry and empathetic to the families of those two men that aren't here anymore. And I am, I hate that they have a hole in their life that they are never going to be able to fill that the United States army just decided to throw a bunch of cash at thinking it would fill it. Right. Um, you know, that's, that's where I'm at. Like, it's okay to hurt, you know, it's just how we process it correctly. And it goes back to what I, I started out saying. The army does, the military does not teach us how to deal with grief and how to deal with that kind of hurt. Um, you know, so it's, it's kind of un, incumbent on, on any type of leader to realize that, you know, this type of hurt, you know, it manifests itself in different ways and to be on the lookout and also be understanding and empathetic uh, when that person decides to like go out and, and try and get help and fix it. Um, you know, we, you know, dude, you've, you've been, you know, in the army longer than I have, you know, but like how many years do we hear it's okay to take care of yourself. And when a kid went and did it, they had massive blowback from it. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, 100%. like we have to, we have to get away from that shit because, you know, things pop off, they pop up and you know what? It does a disservice, not just to that soldier, but if you want to be like a really selfish prick, it's also a disservice to your own person, uh, you know, because it's going to inconvenience you, you know, or whatever the case is. We just need to be more open minded about being empathetic and getting our, our, our service members the help when they need it and without it, it negatively affecting their career. Yeah. Um, and, and we're still processing the, the last 20 years of war um, in a sense in that in the big picture, we haven't taken a knee from 20 years of war to give ourselves the moment to realize that, hey, we need, to, we need to pull our military back from doing X, Y, and Z things right now and give them a chance to breathe and come up and hit a, hit a really hard reset button. Um, but there are people who never wear a uniform wearing suits uh, and ties and business casual wear and whatnot making those decisions for us on a routine basis. And uh, we have too many people who wear the uniform um, in bed with politicians that uh, – um, sort of back those decisions, right? Um, well, I mean, Sm Smedley Butler said it best himself, war's a racket. Like, we, we are sure, not... Sure, it's the biggest business in America. Yeah, you know, and, and until until people start realizing that shit, 
you know, I, I honestly, dude, I don't think we're going to get that, that knee yeah. because look, I mean, fuck the, you know, the current administration's like dropping bombs, you know, in Syria and in, in Iraq right now, like, dude, <laughs> you're, you're talking about like, let's face it. It's not a pullout. You know, it's, we're still gonna have what? Oh, said, no, I, I was saying today, the funny part is, is what no one realizes is that we, we dropped those bombs on ISIS militias who attacked soldiers in Iraq. And we all forgot that we pulled out of Iraq 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, what are we still doing there? You know, like, so I mean, like, <laughs> that we just sort of glossed over the fact that the attacks went on soldiers in Iraq where we're not supposed to be anymore because we pulled out of there. So when we say yeah. we're pulling out of Afghanistan, we're just really kidding. Yeah. You know, and it's like, <laughs> you know, people have to stand up and start saying something, you know, like, dude, we, we've had this horrible, horrible track of murders and suicides in Fort Hood and sexual assaults. Right. Um, and on top of that, it's happening here at Bragg. It's happening at Fort Bragg right now. Fort Bragg's had almost 50 unaccountable deaths in the last calendar year, right? Like, and in the Army, especially these division commanders, like, well, what are we doing? Well, sir, part of it falls on you, right? Stop sitting there with your hand up your ass, you know? Like, let's get down to brass tacks and start doing something. Like, those command climate surveys, guys, it's okay to read it. I promise all right. If guy, if you have service members in your ranks that are having issues, let's try and solve them. And you know what? It's okay. It is totally okay to just say, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to open white space on this day, and let's get let's get behavioral health, let's get mental health, let's get some people in there, and let's let's get this fucking fixed. That way, we don't have any more Vanessa Guillens. We don't have any more, you know, uh, of these fucking murders at Bragg. You know, like. Mm-hmm. We we have to fix this shit. Yeah, well, um, you, you and that does involve, like you said, taking that knee. You, we have to take that knee. You can't increase lethality uh, when you're doing a sensing session. Uh, so tell any O six who's trying to pick up a flag um, <laughs> for their career that uh, we need you to forego lethality uh, for for emotion. Uh, see how well that goes over. Yeah, like, like a fart in church. Um, and that's just again, and, and you know, I'm not openly disparaging. Um, the organization, which I've been part of a long time, but I am acknowledging the flaws and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think us looking introspectively at our organization and finding ways to make us better, uh, should be something that I should be worried about saying out loud in a public forum. But nonetheless, there are people who wear a uniform would scoff at what I just said as sort of disparaging the military. No, I don't, I, I don't think of that at all. I think it's incumbent on leaders in our organization to look introspectively and figure out ways that we can maximize what we have. And some of that includes, Hey dude, take a break, you know, yep. just take five. It, it's, it's okay. Guess what? It's it, it, until they show up on our soil again. Uh, guess what? You got time to take a quick pause. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's like, um, uh, you know, and I, I really agree with that, you know, that you're, what you said about, you know, you're disparaging the military. No, it's not. It's Okay. If it's critical, that's all right. You have to be critical, even of yourself, uh, so you can fix things and get better, right? That's not disparagement. Like you said, it's being introspective and finding out, okay, this is broken. How do we fix it? Um, Which, again, goes back to what we both learned while we were in the military, right? Mm -hmm. 100%. Well, Mike, I mean, uh, I, you know, uh, there's part of me that wishes there was a magic wand that I could wave and sort of... uh, disconnect you from this um, because the the, uh, the legacy that you have extends beyond that 24-hour period that forever changed your life. Um, and 
part of me is is sad that you're in a spot where you know you don't tell a lot of people that you served and it, it, it's it it causes you somewhat pain but in the same respect um I, I can totally understand where you are and whatever keeps you at peace whatever keeps you closer to your family whatever keeps you getting out of bed another day with a smile on your face is what uh, I am 100 percent unequivocally supporting for you in your life and and however you're getting there every day and however anybody from the rest of your platoon is getting there every day is is what is probably most paramount and what i take away from your whole personal story that as long as there are guys and gals getting up every day um well in your case guys only in your platoon but uh who who are still willing to put their feet down for another day on this earth then uh, i think that's something we should all support and so i thank you for uh, opening up to us and sharing all of the details of this whole thing and, and being so honest and forthright and, and just uh, uh, I think your voice is an important one. And, and I hope that you are comfortable enough to continue to tell your story and your side of this story that needs to be heard whenever you're asked about it. Yeah, I mean, that's not going to stop. Um, you know, it took a toll on Fitzgerald because he was the first one to get out and he carried this load by himself for a few years. Um, and, uh, you know, so when I got out, I was like, Fitzy. Uh, you can just go back to being snarky and uh, witty and I will be the asshole up front, you know? Um, and that's, you know, it's essentially what we do. You know, typically we all get in a group chat, like, Hey, are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? You know, we had, uh, you know, an organization that was contesting the, uh, well, it's a fucking pack, right? Uh, I just don't want to go blasting it to the world because I'm not in the mood to deal with their ass on social media. Um, but they asked us if we wanted to like film a, uh, an anti, you know, Trump commercial. <laughs> and we were like, no, absolutely not. No, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then they were, they were just like, well, are you guys pro Trump? I was like, some of us are, I was like, me personally, I'm not, but no, you're not going to turn what we went through into a, a political chip. I was like, that's not, no, you know, um, but yeah, man, it's, it's important. And I'm always going to speak out about this because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's okay to, especially as Americans, you know, we have this great pride in the military and, and to a point, I think it's weird kind of, uh, to have kind of like that adulation. Um, but I also understand at the same time. Um, but we also need to realize again, going into that critical thinking, uh, there are people that do bad things in this uniform. Uh, and it's always been that way. Like you said, there's bad apples, bad actors, what, you know, just fucking awful people. Right. Um, you know, and it's okay to call that out and say, Hey, this was wrong. You know, this was an awful thing that happened. Um, and, and not everybody in uniform is a saint. Uh, you know, I hate to hate to break anybody's, right. you know, worldview there, but, <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're people too. And, and, and there are good, some of us good and some of us bad and some of us make mistakes and, you know, others not so much, you know? So like, it's, uh, you know, the, the veneration, like being proud is one thing, but don't venerate like that. That's where I'm at. Like, let's, if you're to be proud of, of the, the people that represent your country. Okay. But don't venerate that. I think that's the biggest issue we're having right now, yeah. because then like you said, we have this politicization of the military um, where one side gets to claim them and then they, then they get angry when everything doesn't go their way. You know what I mean? Like, sure. Yeah. yeah. And the only thing that's worse than the politicization is the commercialization now of the military. Um, 
Yeah, let's have military appreciation night because it sells tickets. Wonderful. Good job, everybody. Uh, different discussion for a different day. But uh, I want everybody to go check out um, the column by Greg Jaff in the Washington Post. Uh, it's also in Stars and Stripes. You can find it online. Uh, really kind of details um, things in, in as much detail as we talked about. But more importantly, it gives you more of the, the insights of the lives of Twist and some of the other guys who are part of this platoon that are no longer with you. And, and I think hearing their uh, backgrounds and their stories and keeping their memory alive is, is vitally important. And, and honestly, what uh, I, I want people to take away from this is not to forget those men um, who are no longer with us because their sacrifice is, is a big part uh, of this story. And so, again, uh, Mike McGinnis, I certainly appreciate uh, you spending some time with us. It's back to, you know, one of our longer episodes here, but worth every second. So, again, thank you for your time, brother. You stay well. Uh, continued success, continued health. Best of luck with every endeavor you're approaching f- going forward, man. Hey, thank you very much. All right, Mike McGinnis, thanks for being a part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.